Oh, there it is. The first hit of Spooky Tooth of the year. Oh, man. You got the Spooky Tooth tonight. Dude. Fathead's Pumpkin Beer. Nine percenter. Yum. I busted out the Blue Note this evening. So if this conversation goes as well as I think it's going to go, this bottle is going to be much more than a dent by the time we're done. <laughs> if anybody's surprised that John Drake is hosting a Van Halen episode with me, uh, you're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. This is like my dream podcast. Only 284 episodes in, and it's finally John's dream. Yep. I'm just glad you haven't done it already. How could I do a Van Halen episode without you, man? It's exactly. just not possible. <laughs> I was hoping your guitarist would join us so I could make a joke about John being an actual bass player and not a real guitar player. Well, he's never, I, I, I think it's him. He's never seen me play bass, so it's a joke in the band. Like, this mythical bass that you have, I'm like, shut the fuck up, I play. Dude, how was your gig? Uh, it was awesome. It was it was really awesome. It was um it literally the sky opened up right as we're putting the last piece of gear in the trailer. And we played to it's like really spread out over kind of like a large area. So there were a few hundred people, but they were into it. They were like far back because it was 3:30. But that place gets fucking rocking with like a few thousand people at night. And the guy that booked it was talking to our drummer. That's, you know, they talk about this show frequently. And he was like, dude, I think I want to have you guys headline the next time. And we were like, uh, yeah, we'll do that. And if you're ready to headline right now, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe. John Drake is here. It's time. It's happening. We can't hold off any longer. It's not quite 1984, but it is 284. John Drake... We're talking about, say it with me, Van. The mighty. No, no, no. The mighty Van Halen. Fuck. What have I done to myself? This is going to be the most self-serving episode of this podcast ever. I'm just going to (laughs) sit back. I'm going to drink this whiskey. And when John's done talking, we're good. And I've got plenty to say, man. I am, uh, you know, as we discussed previously, a Van Halen subject matter expert, I like to think. It's uh, it's pretty ridiculous, the amount of stuff that I've read about this band. So, so for any of you guitar nuts, you drum, whatever you want to call Alex, insane motherfuckers that want to lay down some serious grooves, if you are as hot for teacher as I am, then you are going to have the time of your life I predict we're going to piss some people off because there's going to be some fanboying. There's going to be some controversial statements. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about listening to the band. We listen to the entire discography. And I cannot tell you how much fun I had listening to Van Halen this week. Yet, I will tell you that throughout the episode because, John, I got to admit, I was not the biggest fan of Van Halen, the band, though I acknowledge what they've done. This is the band everybody talked about a little bit before I started playing guitar. I remember Van Halen being credited for everything. Eddie Van Halen created tapping. Newsflash, he never said that he did that, at least not in an interview I could find. The production choices are so independent. I think it's a joke that his guitar is always panned left in the early days. You might tell me that it it's not a joke, it's a flex because Eddie's the one driving the car. But that would be correct. This band, these guys, are Eddie and Alex the original brothers just sitting downstairs writing some killer music and going to town? 
If they aren't, I would say that um, a lot of people consider them to be such. And they're definitely, I would say, like pretty much the first most famous set of brothers, I would think. Um, and I'm ignorant to a lot of stuff before them. So full disclosure there. But, you know, I mean, it's it's their namesake. Um, the stories have been well traveled, well told about them just coming over from Holland on a boat with, you know, basically 50 guilders and a piano. And, um, you know, their dad was a musician and taught them how to play everything and off they went, you know, then they got bitten by the rock and roll bug and it was, you know, the Dave Clark five and cream and stuff. And they never looked back. So, you know, the Trojan rubber company, the broken combs mammoth, and then, you know, the mighty Van Halen dude. So yeah. Fucking mammoth dude. Are we going to close this out talking about mammoth Wolfgang Van Halen again? You know, I was wondering about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not technically Van Halen, but it technically is. It's technically perfect, I'll tell you that much. You're goddamn right. <laughs> I think that's the one record we probably agree on the most. You know, we like a lot of similar things, but I think that's the one we're both like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> After sitting down with the entire discography, I can tell you I've heard the influences of Van Halen more than I've heard Van Halen. I'm aware of this band, obviously, and the hits are there. I like how they use covers to not pad out the record, but it's that motorhead vibe of I'm just going to play a good show and you're going to enjoy yourself. And if I happen to play a couple songs you've heard somebody else do, guess what? That's what needed to happen for this show to be good. The difference is this band does it on the record with a couple exceptions that are a little more cover heavy than others. But I think you're here because of Eddie, Alex, David, and I'll say it. I'm here for Sammy. Dude can fucking you, sing. Man. It's a different vibe. I'm here for all of it. It's fine. I'm 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 a Sammy guy. Um, that being said, it it is. I mean, like just by a hair. Um, I love all of it. I, I always I always uh, tell people that you know Van Halen is about Eddie, and if Eddie Van Halen's playing guitar on it, I love it. And that being said, you know if I'm if I'm forced into choosing an era, it's gonna be Sammy, and I think it's because. I, you know, like you said, Sammy is an is a world class vocalist, and you know, Sammy's more down to earth than Dave. And I, I I like Eddie's attitude of just being a regular dude, and Sammy's much closer to that than Dave is. Also, let's be honest. I mean, Dave is a pain in the ass and has made getting anything Van Halen done very difficult, even as recently as within the last few months. And it's just Sammy's just a much more laid back guy, and I think he fits the Van Halen vibe a little bit, at least to me, a little bit better, even though a lot of people would say that David Lee Roth is the party and he made the band and everything like that. I just think that the vibe of the Van Halen catalog, Sammy has more of that personality than Dave does, just to me. Here, I thought I was going to be the one to start this off with controversial statements, but you're right there with me. It's fine. I think the Van Halen that everybody knows is Eddie, like you said. The band was around long enough. They're still around in my heart, John. I don't know about you, but <laughs> quite a bit. It stopped being about Dave and Sammy and it started being about the songs. I think it's annoying that you would never hear, at least I never found any examples of David Lee Roth singing a Sammy Hagar Van Halen song. I found the opposite, which is supposed to be the band, but at least to David Lee Roth, he is the vocalist of Van Halen. And I think a lot of people would say, yes, he is. And you're both wrong, but it works as a whole. It's the music that Eddie and Alex wrote in that studio. 
And some of it wasn't the party. Some of it was, let's just have fun. Let's rock out and love each other. What's wrong with that? Yeah. And I think, you know, with, with the Sammy stuff, it's, you know, it, it, Eddie was able to kind of branch out. You know, the, the Dave stuff is a little more narrow-minded. It, it's more singular in its focus and purpose. Whereas, you know, Eddie had more to say. I always hate I always hate that phrase, but you know, in this case it is it is appropriate. And you know, when you when you look back at stuff like, you know, an unreleased track from, you know, the balance record, like crossing over, or you've got, you know, some of the stuff on that record, you know, um, you know, deja vu, uh, things like that. And then, you know, there's there's a number of examples in the Sammy catalog of stuff that you could never ever hear Dave singing or even even trying to sing. And, you know, it shows in the material they put out after he left the band. You've got the two songs on the greatest hits and you've got a different kind of truth, which we'll get to later. Um, and all of it is pretty much in that David Lee Roth vein. It's not branched out like the Sammy stuff is. You know, the Sammy stuff is more diverse. And I, I think that's why I have that preference for it. Um, you know, because, because it does show more sides of Eddie Van Halen, which is really cool because the most underrated thing about Eddie is his songwriting. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a lot as, as, you know, the show goes on. But the thing that's always fascinating to me is that people know Eddie Van Halen as a guitar god, and that's awesome. But not a lot of people talk about him as a songwriter, which is crazy because you think about all these different guitar gods, like, okay, you've got like, let's say an Ingve Malmsteen or, or Joe Satriani, guys like that. Well, na name off the top of your head an Ingve song or a Joe Satriani song. You might name a couple. That's awesome. Name me a Van Halen song and you can name maybe every track start to finish for the whole discography. You know, if you're a fan like me or if you're even if you're a casual fan, you could probably rip off like 20, 30 Van Halen songs off the top of your head, which just goes to show that Eddie was so much more than just this, you know, world changing guitar icon. You know, he was the band. He was the whole heart and soul of all of it. He wrote every note they ever did. I mean, obviously, minus the cover tunes. But it doesn't get talked about enough, you know, his brilliance as a songwriter. Those might be the bad examples for the guy in the room with you, John, because I can actually name most of Ingve Malmsteen and Joe Satriani's songs. But I like the point you were trying to make. You were saying <laughs> not only is Eddie a guitar god and he can shred your fucking face off, but the dude can do that while writing interesting songs and playing interesting music. I'm going to give Van Halen the pass on the cover songs. I don't think there's one song that they are known for that is a bad choice. And that means when Van Halen sits down to play, they're going to play songs that they write. They're going to play songs that somebody else writes. And you're going to have a good time because the way they play it, it's all cohesive. It all works together. And there's some oddities in here for sure. I don't think the discography's perfect, but I'm outside the gates of the camp that Van Halen is a perfect band, John. I'm hoping you'll let me in by the end of this episode. You're more than welcome, man. I always leave tons of room on the bandwagon for anybody who wants to jump on and, uh, you know, pray at the altar, you know, the gospel that is Edward Lodewijk Van Halen, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, this I mean, literally, this is the band that changed my life when, I, you know, I, I discovered them when I was eight years old in 1984. And it literally changed my entire life. And um, they've been my favorite band since then. It's never changed. And I just, I absolutely love what they do. I love the vibe. And and I, you know, I mean, we're going to harp on Eddie a lot as people are, you know, want to do when you talk about this band. But I mean, it's true. Like, I, I just, I, I get, I totally get on board with his attitude about music, 
about performing. You know, he's he's just down to earth. And, you know, he's, you know, his famous saying, like, if it sounds good, it is good. I mean, you got to love that. Uh, and he just he he did not have the typical, you know, they you know, rock stars always have that that ego to them. It's it, to some degree. But Eddie really was like a down to earth guy. And I met him, you know, and I, you know, he was, you know, just waving to people and everything after playing for us. And I, the guy hugged me because I told him, I said, fuck, I said, fuck music. You just beat cancer. It's just good to see you healthy back out here doing what you love to do. And he he squatted down from the stage and gave me hugs like, thank you, man. That means a lot to me. Like the guy was real. And, you know, it's, it's his attitude and his belief in music and what it should be that really like, when I started digging into the band, like beyond the music and, and reading books and interviews and all this other stuff, like that's what really, really, really hooked me was his attitude and everything. Cause I'm like, yeah, this is just a normal dude who happens to absolutely kick ass on electric guitar and writing great tunes. How much of the eighties hair metal vibe is Van Halen and how much of it is the new wave of British heavy metal? Like, Judas Priest. And I include Def Leppard in that, not because they play heavy metal, but they are, you know, they're a heavy rock band who had that vibe. I think a lot of it is Van Halen, with one exception. Nobody could actually do what Eddie did by himself. He was the sole guitarist in the band, and if he recorded a second track, there was a reason for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and he, you know, it's been well documented that he didn't want to overdub you know didn't know how to overdub however you want to phrase it when they went in to do that first record you know he wanted it to be live and he always said that the reason he did all that noodling in between passages was because he was the only guitar player and the music he grew up listening to always had instrumentation going and so he was just filling he was filling space he's like this this keeps it moving you know and it, it, you know it's just I don't know, like your question about like new wave of British heavy metal or hair metal for the hair metal stuff. Like I, I think, I think the hair metal stuff was all Van Halen. Um, I, I think you have to get into the heavier bands to talk about being influenced by the new wave of British heavy metal, because I don't, when you, when you read into these bands, like a rat or, you know, poison or, or guys like that winger, all this stuff, you know, like they weren't talking about, Oh, you know, black Sabbath and Judas priest and all that stuff. They always go back to, you know, Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and, and more of the rock stuff. Um, so I, I would say that the hair metal was definitely the Van Halen side of things where you got to get into like the, the, the metal bands to really get into the, you know, the new wave of British heavy metal stuff. Well, before John and I just get right into it some more, I'm going to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, you can find everything Discography Discussion at DiscussMetal.com. We are on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Podchaser. So if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion podcast, and it will. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Be sure to like, favorite, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It lets us know you're listening. John Drake, what's going on on the Nerf Herder Council and talking into infinity? We've got a lot going on, man. Uh, Nerf Herder Council, we have been on a little bit of a Marvel kick lately. So our most recent episode uh, is the first part of a two-part episode. We decided we were going to rank all of the phase one, two, and three uh, MCU films, the Infinity Saga. So the first, epi the first episode of the two-parter came out a couple days ago. 
and it was uh, numbers 12 through 23. And in a week and a half, we're going to do the second half, which is going to be numbers 11 to 1. So um, we got some great stuff coming up after that. We definitely want to dig into some more nerdy stuff. Obviously, Andor will be coming out, so we will be hitting that. I'm going to be getting into some Tron stuff. We're going to go into some Jurassic Park. And eventually, I'm going to get some Stephen King on there because I love Stephen King, and I really want to talk about some Stephen King. So that's what's going on on the Nerf Herder Council. And uh, talking into infinity has been rolling, man. It's It's been a blast. Um, we've got an episode coming up this coming week. It's it's live on Thursday night at 7.30. And uh, we're going to be doing one of our album cage matches. And we are trying to figure out which albums to do. We always do a random number generator to figure it out. And Images and Words came out as one of the albums. And my co-host Brian wants to use it. And I don't because I basically figure that anytime you put something up against Images and Words, Images and Words is probably going to win eight to nothing. <laughs> so... We're going to figure that out, but we got some really cool stuff coming up on the show, man. We, um, you know, speaking of Van Halen, what we're talking about here on this, on this show, uh, October 6th is actually a, a normal show day for us. And that is of course the unfortunate anniversary of Eddie passing. So we are going to be doing a deep dive into Van Halen's 1984 record on that day. Uh, and speaking of deep dives into other stuff outside of dream theater, we just did an episode doing a deep dive into Rush's seminal moving pictures record, which was a lot of fun. And uh, before that, we had a really good episode. We uh, dug into Scenes from a Memory, their 1999 concept record. And we had a guest host on that, that broke down the story in detail. And it was absolutely fascinating. So if you are a Dream Theater fan at any level, if you really like Scenes from a Memory, check that one out because our buddy Adam Rishog goes into a lot of detail about the story of Scenes from a Memory. And there's a lot of stuff that even I didn't know. I was like, wow, look at this. So it's very interesting, man. And it's a lot of fun to do both shows. And uh, I would encourage people, if you're into nerdy stuff or dream theater, uh, even progressive metal, you know, look it up. It's uh, the Nerf Herder Council and Talking Into Infinity, a dream theater podcast. I'm annoyed, John. You didn't invite me to any of that. Not only would I like to rate all of the Phase 1, 2, 3 Marvel films, but I'd like to defend whatever album you want to put against Images and Words, only because you can't defend any album you put against Images and Words. It's my favorite Dream Theater record. I'm not ashamed of that. It's near perfection, and it is audio amazing. Yes, it's, you know, I mean, ironically, it's not my favorite Dream Theater record, which is not a, my favorite record is Falling Into Infinity, which is not a popular opinion. But I mean, you cannot deny that Images and Words is pretty much a perfect record and the songs are just incredibly well crafted. And again, you know, as much as I love Falling Into Infinity, if you were to put, you know, Images and Words up against, let's say that one. You know, your images and words is going to crush pretty much anything. So it's very difficult to do a cage match because what we do is, you know, you know, we go song for song. So we, we make sure there's an e equivalent amount of songs and we say, OK, track one versus track one, you know, which one wins? And we do that throughout and we come up with a tally at the end. And I mean, images is just so kick ass. That it's <laughs> like, you just can't put something up against it. It's because you go into it already knowing how it's going to turn out. You know what I mean? Like, so it's it's an interesting thing to do, and I just I just think images and words is an unfair comparison to anything. So so what do I have to do to get involved in an end of the year battle royale where you put four albums against each other track by track? Four records. Wow. Gotta go big, man, or go home. AKA wow. turn off the webcam. 
yeah. Um, that's actually not a bad show idea, man. We could we could definitely do that. And if we if we call it the album battle royale, that'd be kind of cool. I'll wait for my invitation email and uh, my five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> look, you look. I'm a Patreon subscriber, so you already get my money every month. So you know you've got my five dollars. But I, you know, don't you think other people should spend five dollars on your podcast? What do you think? I really, really want everyone to check out Patreon.com forward slash Discuss Metal, where we have some sweet perks. There are so many, over 200 individual album reviews. There's going to be more stuff. There's a monthly hangout and early access to this episode, which if you're hearing it now, you better get subscribed for the next one because that's how you're going to hear it early. And John, I got to ask, are you a fan of uh, Treyu? I don't know very much Atreyu at all, to be completely honest with you. Well, we just did an episode about Atreyu a few weeks ago, and Celestial Bikini Atoll, Tantalized Funyuns, you have a contender for the best name ever, left a comment on YouTube, one of your best discussions yet. Really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about this band's discography. Atreyu is awesome, with my favorite album of theirs definitely being... A death grip on yesterday. I've been listening to this podcast since last year. It really helps me through the day. And I totally understand. Atreyu is an acquired taste. But I do love how they experiment. And I absolutely agree. I used to dismiss this band for reasons. Uh, but no more. No more. Atrey- Atreyu has won me over. They They deserve all the credit they get. And anybody who says that they said they invented Metalcore... I can't confirm they said that, and that's all I have to say. One more. Got a comment on YouTube from One Funeral Too Many. This was regarding our episode 157. Today is the day. Cool podcast. Been listening to this band since high school and and recently found out about Tantrum of the Muse because of them. Everybody needs to know about Tantrum of the Muse and Unteachers. The original Today is the Day trio was the shit. They were like a 70s power trio. And speaking of 70s power trios, John Drake, I'm going to get a beer and you're going to tell me all about Van fucking Halen. Go! Pasadena, California's favorite sons, man. So as we said earlier, you know, started out as, you know, the Broken Combs, the Trojan Rubber Company, Mammoth. And then uh, when they got David Lee Roth on vocals, he decided it would be a good idea that, you know, let's, you know, call the band... Van Halen, name it after the brothers. He thought it sounded cool, but also figured it would get him some cred with the brothers and kind of be like, oh, look how nice I am. I named the band after you. But uh, yeah, Eddie and Alex Van Halen started it all in the early 70s. I had a guy named Mark Stone on bass and he kind of dropped out. They got Michael Anthony from another local band called Snake and uh, got David Lee Roth from Red Ball Jet, who was actually a competing band against Van Halen. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So, you know, everyone knows the story, but Gene Simmons saw them and thought that they were worth, you know, signing. So he decided to fly them out to New York and they did a very large demo at a very nice studio. Uh, And man, his label, his manager, they were like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. So then Ted Templeman happened to go to the Starwood. And uh, he saw Van Halen and was like, uh, yeah, 
So he got Mo Austin to come out, and uh, you know, uh, the rest is history, as they say. And you know, they got their record deal, and off they went. And you really got me. Hit the radio, and they never, ever, ever looked back. And they became one of the most successful rock bands in history. And Eddie Van Halen cemented his place as probably the greatest guitar player we have ever heard. So, yeah, an incredibly influential band on countless bands to come after them in terms of songwriting, in terms of image, in terms of, you know, every band had to have a hotshot guitar shredder on lead guitar. And none of them could ever live up to the standards set by Eddie, Alex, Mikey, Dave, and Sammy. Where do we begin? It has to be 1978's Van Halen. Props to these guys for not only getting the self-titled thing going early, but looking back on the legacy that this band, especially Eddie, has left behind, I think it matters that the first album is just the band. This is Van Halen. It's the brothers. It's the music. It's the attitude. It's where guitar was going to go next. I've said it many times on this show. There is an entire population of people that will not accept the possibility that there has been a better guitarist since Jimi Hendrix. There is also an entire population of people that will not accept the possibility that Eddie Van Halen is not the greatest rock guitarist of all time. I think Eddie Van Halen has influenced more modern, heavy music than any other guitarist in history. And eventually, you'll hear every Eddie trick. And you don't care because it sits in your memory as part of the song. The noodling is important. I like that you called it that earlier because noodling is what we do when we're sitting there with nothing to do trying to figure out how Eddie did it. And yet, (laughs) he uses it so tastefully. A record that starts with Running With The Devil. For me, this isn't the first song of Van Halen. This is one of the greatest hits of the entire band. I wish I knew what it felt like to put this album on for the first time and hear that siren. It's probably a car horn knowing these guys just fading in to that bass line that Yep. Always will stick out in my mind as one of the reasons Dave Mustaine threw a, an air conditioner at somebody once. <laughs> Apparently, this is an annoying song to hear if you're just playing the bass part. Not sure why. Well, you can probably play it one-handed, can't you, John? You would think so. You would think so. Um, yeah, I mean, you actually nailed it. It is a car horn, but it's actually a car horn in reverse. And it was something that Alex Van Halen came up with. And um I actually have friends that are a little older than I am that actually experienced the record. Like you said, you know, you want to know what it felt like to hear it for the first time and the way that they've all, all of them have described it, you know, and several of them are actually guitar players as well. And they said, you know, you hear running with the devil and you're like, what the, oh my God, this is such a catchy song. And then track two comes along and eruption hits. And they said that it was absolutely like a fork in the road. It's like everything was going this way. And all of a sudden they heard that and it went the other way. Every one of them to a man or woman was like, what in the hell is this? And how do we do it? And no one could figure it out. It was so revolutionary. 
and so different and so kick ass that everyone just went, you got to be kidding me. It's I mean, like it's, Les Paul and his new sound. How the fuck did he do that? He yeah. put the tape machine at half speed and recorded the part and then played it at normal speed. Now, we know that today, but I can't think of what it felt like to hear Eddie Van Halen do Eruption for the first time. I, I can't fathom that. I don't know a world or an existence or a, a musical journey that doesn't already know what that is. Even when yeah. I was learning to play guitar and I didn't understand exactly how to do it, I got what he was doing. One of the coolest interviews he ever did was late in his life where he just broke it down. He says, I saw Led Zeppelin play live and my brain said, put your finger here and, and he ran with it. Literally ran his, with yeah. the devil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he said he used his finger as the nut. And he said, you know, if I tap here, you know, with, with you know, with, you know with, with my right hand, it does this. And then, you know, if I move and put my finger here and move it up like the nut and then tap through, it's, you know, he's just basically moving, almost like moving the neck up and down. And, you know, he he does, he, he credits Jimmy Page with that. You know, he, he saw Led Zeppelin and that's where he got it from. And there were other players that kind of did something similar. You know, it's been, you know, reported about that as well. You can um, find jazz guys doing that way back when, but keep in mind, this is the 70s and the yeah. 60s. It's not that somebody did it or didn't do it. It's that you didn't have the ability to search for and find that footage. So, yeah, people did it, but... What led Eddie to figure it out, I think, matters for this band because it shapes how he approaches the instrument, which is no rules. And I'm quoting him on that. Yep. Yeah. And he, dude, and he, you know, he always he always said that, you know, when he would see players after him, he would say, yeah, I see him doing my stuff. He said, but th they used it as a trick. He said, you know, for himself, it was just part of what he did. It was a natural thing. Whereas other people were like, oh, look, I, I can do the Eddie tapping thing or I can do the cathedral thing, you know, and it, it was so effortless for him. And it, it was just the way, again, like we said earlier, it, it was a way to fill space. And he was he was creating a way to do things that he heard in his head that you couldn't do naturally. He's like, well, how do I do this? How do I make this sound that's in my head? You know, and, and he figured out a way to do it. And, you know, nobody before him except for Hendrix had ever done something like that. You know, I mean, you know, you mentioned, you know, there's there's people that, you know, won't accept the fact that, you know, Hendrix is, you know, the guitar guy no matter what. And it's, you know, I, I think, you know, no matter what argument you have, I, I think there's no denying that the two most influential guitarists ever for rock and roll would be Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen because the instrument was played a certain way and then Hendrix comes along and now it's played like that and they're playing it that way then Eddie Van Halen comes along and it's been played like that ever since so until you know, and Dimebag and now it's played that way <laughs> everybody's handing it off and making it heavier yep yep but you know I mean Eddie Van Halen like you said with his tapping and everything it, you know it's part of his style but you know it started with that first record and it it just became that's what you expect from Van Halen. And you said it perfectly that you, you know, it's cool that it's just, it's named after the band. It's just the four guys and it lays the blueprint for what you get. And Eruption lays the blueprint for what you get from Eddie himself. And it's, you know, like you, you, you hear the tricks a million times and you don't care. You're like, sweet. Here comes another tapping thing. I love it. You know, here, here comes all, you know, the, the goofy scrapes and the, you know, squeals and the swells and all that kind of stuff that he does. You know, the elephant sound, the horse sound, whatever. And you know it's coming and you don't care because it's Eddie. 
and you're just it's so ingrained where like you know you may say oh man i gotta hear this again but then if you didn't hear it you'd be pissed because you're like well i'm not hearing eddie if i'm not hearing him do this stuff (laughs) so you know but yeah you know they they laid the blueprint on that first record and you know opens with running with the devil goes into eruption which obviously you know for guitar players worldwide just changed the game completely and then from there it's just a succession of great song after great song after great song after great song it's got this fun happy light party vibe some phenomenal songwriting and you know something you mentioned earlier was you know eddie panning his guitar to the left and you know they did they did do that it was a conscious decision because they wanted the records to sound like a live band so he didn't want to do overdubs. He, if I if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think he'd started doing overdubs, uh, you know, at least on a consistent basis until the fourth record, Fair Warning, which obviously we'll get to later. But you know, it was always like guitar on one side, bass on the other, you know, drums, vocals in the middle, whatever. And that was a conscious effort to make it sound like a live band. And Ted, Tep- Ted Templeman, excuse me, wanted it that way because they were a live band. They blew the doors off of your fucking face when you saw them live, and he wanted that on vinyl and the best way to do it was to do it the way you would hear a band when you see them live. I want to move to Van Halen 2, 1979. One of the most consistent pieces of Van Halen for at least the first 10 years is how Eddie uses the guitar. And I know there are books and hours and hours of video of Eddie's tone being the topic of conversation. Where we are today, for the most part, dude just turned everything up as loud as he could and then used the guitar to change the sound. The guitar in his hands. I don't want to take away from how he's playing, but how cool was it to have people talking about your sound? They called it the brown sound. That was a myth when I started playing guitar. The mythical sound of Eddie Van Halen that nobody could ever really get right. And then you look back and you say, he just turned everything up as loud as he could because live band. It's the simplest thing you can do. And it took me 20 years to figure it out. I was jamming last week. I had everything up as loud as it could go. And then I turned my guitar down and I just increased and pumped the volume whenever I needed to. Because when you're going to take a solo, crank it a little bit. You're going to back off and let the trumpet take the solo back down a little bit. It's the simplest thing you can do. And how many years did we all spend buying pedals and pedal boards and wiring it up, trying to sound cool or for others, trying to sound like Van Halen? Again, it's something I remember pieces of it, but I can't tell you what that feels like. I can't go back and tell you what it felt like to hear Black Sabbath for the first time and not know how they sound like that. Or to hear Van Halen put out album number two, and it sounds like the exact same fucking live band you saw last week. This record is so good. It doesn't start off as ready to go, but it's Van Halen too, John. What do you got for me? It's a fantastic record. Um, it, This is a weird record for me because it's a fan favorite, but it doesn't get talked about a lot. People are always like, oh, I love Van Halen too. But, but you don't see people digging into it, you know, you know, there, there's three records of the Roth era that people really kind of 
like get into on a granular level being, you know, obviously the debut, uh, Bear Warning in 1984. And when you take the other three records, you know, Van Halen 2 and Women and Children First and Diver Down, you don't hear as much about them, but Van Halen 2 is universally regarded as a great record and fans love it, but they just don't talk about it a ton. And, you know, I, I love that you said it doesn't come in, you know, with all guns blazing like the first record. But I think that's kind of cool because, it, you know, it opens with, you know, You're No Good, the Linda Ronstadt cover. And right off the bat, it introduces something different. So, you know, from the tones and everything and everything. And it's I love that as an album opener because you're expect, you know, you're expecting something like, you know, Feel Your Love Tonight or one of those like, you know, you really got me or something like that. Instead, you get, you're no good. So you're instantly like, oh, it's like you right off the rip have something that's making you think, okay, what's going on? Then you get Dance the Night Away and you're like, oh, there's the Van Halen that I like, you know, and it, it's it's awesome the way that they kind of threw that curveball in there. And, you know, the record is full of so many great songs. And then you get to Spanish Fly. And like you said, you're talking about like pedals and the brown sound and all this stuff. And Spanish Fly is basically eruption on an acoustic. And yet you can still hear it's Eddie Van Halen. It's not, you know, when you strip everything away, all the, it's not like all the magic is gone. Spanish Fly is absolutely incredible and it's definitely Eddie. And, you know, to your point about, you know, the way he used the guitar, you know, turn everything up to 10 and then just, you know, use the instrument to kind of, you know, ev- he always said this and, and guitar players that played his rig always said it's it, it was in his hands. And he always said too, it's in the hands. Like, he would make the sounds with the guitar. He would use the volume knob. He would, you know, the tapping and all the different, you know, cool stuff that he did. It was with the amp just absolutely blazing. And he used, you know, physical techniques to actually coax the sounds out of the guitar that he wanted. And Spanish Fly is a perfect example because even though it's just him and an acoustic guitar, there are no effects. There's no nothing. It sounds like his playing, which is awesome, which just shows right there that you can put all the effects in the world on Eddie Van Halen's guitar, but that's not what made it. What made Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen was his hands. And it, it's just beautiful to listen to that. And Van Halen too has several moments like that. You know, the guitar, the guitar solo in Dance the Night Away is all tapping. It's it's all harmonic tapping. You know, it's chordal harmonic tapping. It, it, it's so badass. And, you know, the, the, I think this is like, again, it's a fan favorite record, Van Halen 2, but I think it's unheralded, you know, because like, again, people just don't talk about it a lot, but you've got some phenomenal stuff on here. You know, Bottoms Up is just a fun tune. DOA absolutely rocks. Uh, you know, uh, Light Up the Sky. I mean, they opened their last tour ever. That was their opening song, which was really kick ass. And, you know, you've got the hits, you know, Dance the Night Away, Beautiful Girls. It's it's just such a great record. And, you know, it's the other thing that I think I don't think people talk about enough with this one. Coming off the massive success of Van Halen 1, it would be so easy to fall on your face. And they didn't. They didn't. And the reason is, is, again, something else that Eddie was a genius with. He wrote so much music that he held a ton of it back so that when he was looking for something, he could go back to the well and be like, yeah, let me revisit this idea I had before. And we'll get into this as this episode goes on. He went back to that well so many times and that's why they were so consistent because when he was at his most creative, he recorded fucking everything. And it it, it keeps popping up throughout the catalog over and over again. The stuff that he wrote, you know, in the mid 70s, late 70s, that was just great music. It's the perfect vibe. This record is the perfect B-side to Van Halen 1. So without trying, the band has released a two-hour epic of rock and roll. 
And it's Van fucking Halen, dude. Yep. You make the perfect statement saying that Van Halen 2 is the perfect B-side to Van Halen 1. That is the very best way to phrase those two records, man. Excellent point on your part. You talk about the well, and the band went back to the well so much. Looking back, that's one of my favorite things about this band. Just racks of tapes in that studio. They recorded everything. It sounds like it. And that's one of my favorite things about making music today. It's so much easier to put a couple mics up and hit record and record anywhere. I've captured so many good ideas on a fucking cell phone sitting in the corner of the room in the past (laughs) 10 to 15 years. My point is these guys, I don't think you can call them perfect or masters. They just did it so much that they pulled out so much good from what they were doing. There's no way that Wolfgang doesn't have something that nobody's heard. But then again, maybe there's a lot of stuff nobody's heard because what we heard was so fucking good. Yeah. I mean, dude, when, when you look at pictures of 5150 in videos or in books, you know, you could see the tape vaults and they are absolutely jammed to the gills with, you know, just tape. And so there is so much stuff in there. And you make a great point. Like, you know, and, and maybe some people could use this as a criticism. Like, well, yeah, if, you know, if they record 800 hours of stuff, well, they better be able to get, you know, two albums worth of material out of it. And I mean, I guess you could say that. But I mean, Eddie was, you know, the way that I've always looked at it is the guy was so fucking prolific when he, as a writer that he's got so much coming out that he's got 800 hours to choose from. It's not like exactly. you or I, I mean, you or I, like when we, when we write something, if we write something and we go, okay, well, I don't think this sounds very good. We scrap it. We don't keep it. Eddie kept everything. Cause he's like, maybe there's something I can do with this later. You know, I, I mean, it's just another part of his genius. It, the, you know, the things that he did that were so revolutionary and he just was so forward thinking and, you know, God damn, dude. Like, I really hope at some point that Wolfgang and Alex come together and and put that stuff out. Just go through and, you know, kind of like, was it Prince that did all the posthumous stuff? Like all the, you know, yes. like tons of records and stuff like, like, I, I, and I know some people bag on that and I'm not a Prince fan, but it, it, for me, if they did that with Eddie Van Halen and you just give me like hour upon hour upon hour of Eddie just screwing around on guitar, take my money, dude. Just, just take my money. Here's my credit card. Just, I don't care what it is. I'm listening to it. You know, it's one thing if the artist is in on it and I know Prince was, nobody's putting out anything he did not want released. Eddie, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where they go with that. But you mentioned Prince. I was waiting till later. I'll say it now. If anybody wants to criticize this band for doing so many fucking covers, Prince would do covers and get praised for it. So praise Van Halen, because there's a lot of songs you like that they played that somebody else just happened to write. Get over it. A lot of music is written by somebody else. Let's move on. 1980, Women and Children First. Yeah, this was really, this was this was a turning point record for the band. You know, Eddie finally was starting to feel confident in what he was doing, what he was bringing to the table. And it's the first record that they did without a cover. You know, we've been talking about the covers a lot tonight. And and this was their first cover-free record. And, you know, again, they opened the record with a curveball because the opening track, you know, and the cradle will rock. It is not a guitar in there. That riff, it, it it is a Wurlitzer run through a Marshall. 
so Eddie, with his constant tinkering and screwing with stuff, he's like, well, what if I run this electric piano through a, through a, my guitar amp? Let's see what it, and it, and that's what came out. And um, there, there's still to this day a lot of Van Halen fans, like casual fans that don't know that because it does sound pretty guitarish. And when you go back and listen to it, once you're told that, you're like, okay, I can hear that. But if you don't know and, and you're not privy to that story, it does sound pretty guitarish. So that that was pretty kick ass. It helps and, with the mix in the right ear because yes. this is one of those songs that he overdubbed something yeah. and it throws you off just enough. Yep. Yeah. This is this is I I think one of the weirder records, but I like it because you know again as I said earlier you 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 phrased it so well saying that Van Halen two is the perfect B side to Van Halen one. And I think this one is like, okay, here's Van Halen getting a little bit weird for the first time, which I think is a great counterpoint to the first two records. You know, this is where they start to branch out and you get, you know, stuff like Tora Tora and Loss of Control. And, you know, um, you know, I mean, In a Simple Rhyme is a really cool song structure. Uh, it, it's just, could this be magic? And like, what the hell is that? I mean, Eddie Van Halen's playing slide guitar with a beer bottle for Christ's sakes on an acoustic, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it's a weird, it, it's like, there's some weird stuff, but it's all filtered through that Van Halen lens, you know, that prism, you know, fools is like this dirty blues almost, but it's, it's Van Halen. You know what I mean? And, you know, in a, you know, like I said, like, uh, um, could this be magic? It's this like old timey sea shanty or, or what, what, I forget. I'm using the improper term, but you know what I'm going for. But it sounds like Van Halen. And it's just this record expanded what they did. And it, it was so cool, man. And Dave, Dave was letting Eddie get a little creative and Eddie was feeling it. And this record was the result. But you still have those awesome Van Halen straight ahead moments like everybody wants some. Take Your Whiskey Home might be one of the single most underrated Van Halen tunes ever recorded. And In a Simple Rhyme is such a great album closer because it's just happy and fun. And at the end of this weird record, you just get this kind of love song, you know, and it, it's 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 such a fun record because you get something different that you hadn't gotten on the previous two records. Yet there's still that Van Halen anchor. This record sounds like this band has been on tour and they just want to play some fucking tunes. It's not like they're trying to reinvent the wheel or they're putting out the magical album number three, which by all accounts, this is album number two. And we talk about it on this podcast all the time. You have your whole life to write your first album, then you got to do it again. This doesn't sound like a band that's phoning it in. It doesn't sound like a band that's losing their mind or doesn't know what they need to do next to keep people on the line. It's fucking Van Halen. This is album three in three years. I hear a band that's been on tour and just wants to jam. Let's try that weird shit. Hey guys, I plugged this piano into my Marshall. Dun, 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 dun. Check it out. It's like the doors, only it's way heavier. And then they just fucking run with it. So it's a cool off step. It's not a misstep. We're just turning left and seeing where we land tonight. Yeah, it's definitely not a misstep. I, I you know, very well said again. Um, it, it's an off step. It's like a different. Like let's let's take a left turn. Let's let's see where we where we land. And like I said, it opens with the with the Wurlitzer run through a Marshall, and then the second song. You know, they go into a jungle beat for everybody wants some. Like you hadn't heard something like that before, and it, it's them branching out. It's you know, like you said, it's it's the sound of a band that's done a couple tours, and they're they're feeling themselves like they're getting comfortable in their own skin. And they're like, okay, we can do other stuff as well. 
And I know I said earlier that the Dave stuff is more narrow in focus than the Sammy stuff. And it is. But there there are moments where they branch out a little bit and you can kind of hear it as, you know, the Dave stuff goes along. And I think this is really the first time you hear them getting into something other than we're just a fun party rock, hard rock guitar band. And it's really, you know, as I said before, it's really, really fun to listen to. It's just interesting. Because like I said, you go from the Wurlitzer and then you go to, you know, everybody wants them with the jungle beat. Then you get the dirty blues of fools. And then you got Romeo Delight, which is just absolutely one of the greatest Van Halen songs ever recorded. That song just absolutely fucking rips. That is a great, great song. I, I don't know where you stand on Romeo Delight, but that is one of my all-time favorite Van Halen tunes. It just goes. It just goes. It is one of the heaviest moments of this album. And I think it's one of the lesser known but better written songs by the band. It's proof that everybody is listening to the radio rock of Van Halen. And even when they have little tidbits like this right under their nose, like like I did 15 years ago, this is one of the sleeper hits. This is one that you pull out of your back pocket when everybody says, Hey, let's play a song. What do you want to play? I want to play the same Van Halen song everybody else is playing. Dude, let's fucking play Romeo's Delight. <laughs> oh, dude, it's a great song. Yeah, nobody plays that shit. This is a song I want to hear somebody cover because I don't think I've heard anybody do it. Yeah, you pretty much hear the Van Halen tribute bands do it, and that's basically it. I, I th- I'm almost positive there's some major bands out there that if you look for it, that they have done Romeo Delight. I can't think of who it is off the top of my head, though, but I, I want to say it's out there. But to your point, it's not common. And when people are covering Van Halen, they're not thinking Romeo Delight. You know, it's they're going for Panama. They're going for half a teacher. They're going, for, yeah, they're going for Oh, dude. <laughs> like, yeah, but Romeo Delight, like you said, it's, you know, I mean, I don't think it's one of the heaviest moments on the on this record. I think it's the heavy moment on the record. You know, Eddie Van Halen, it's just awesome. And it's got his, like I said, the volume swells and stuff like that. And then in the breakdown, you know, feel my heartbeat. He's doing the, he's like, you know, tapping the pick on the poles of the pickup. It's like, it's more Eddie doing Eddie stuff. You know, I've seen, I've seen articles that people have written saying that Eddie, if you, if you listen to it, Eddie didn't really have anything to offer that was truly original in his catalog after Van Halen won. And I'm like, fuck you. Like, you you obviously don't know what you're listening to. And maybe you got to be a guitar nerd to know what he was doing to say, okay, no, he did have more to offer. But I don't give a shit if you're not a guitar nerd. If you don't know it and you're making that statement, you're full of shit. Because he was doing all kinds of goofy shit all the time. He always was progressing. And he really started to branch out on women and children first. This was the record where he really started to be like, look, dude, check out all this really goofy shit that I can do with a guitar. I I can't come up with a response to that story that isn't offensive to somebody. So I'm going to move on and say, John, fair warning, 1981. And that is your only warning. So I have not listened to this album very much. I've heard songs off this album. But I have not sat down with fair warning in a very long time. And here we are. John Drake wants to talk about Van Halen. And I get to fair warning. And it happened again within the first 15 seconds. Oh, that was on fair warning? My friend, much like Running With The Devil, you cannot start an album with Mean Street and not be ready to fucking 
go. This is phenomenal. If you have any problems with women and children first, just set those aside because fair warning is going to take care of all of your concerns. It might be an alternative B-side to Van Halen. It's like Van Halen is making a six-sided die at this point. They're just filling in the sides. All right, which Van Halen do I want to listen to today? Ah, got fair warning again. Oh, well, this is fine. It's got Mean Street. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this is, if you if you talk to, you know, the David Lee Roth fans, this is universally pretty much regarded as the, if you're a massive Van Halen fan, especially the Dave stuff, this is the fan favorite. And a lot of people will point to 1984 or the debut, but it's not. It is, it is the fan favorite. Fair warning. It is the dark record. It is the Eddie Van Halen's getting fucking tired of David Lee Roth record. Uh, you know, it starts out, like I said, with Mean Street. And again, we get Eddie doing Eddie stuff. You know, that that intro is him actually doing slap bass, but on a guitar. And you get that intro and also you get this super simple riff. And it comes in and it's just dirty and it grooves and it sets a tone for this record that this is, you know, Van Halen's darkest moment. And it is absolutely fantastic. And again, you know, it they're, they're doing something different. It's changing. It's changing what you're getting from the band. You make it again, a great point saying that, you know, a B-side to the first record. And it is, you know, Van Halen 2 was a perfect B-side because it was, you know, it was almost as good as Van Halen 1. It was pretty much like Van Halen 1. Fair Warning is a perfect B-side because Van Halen 1 was happy and upbeat and party. Fair Warning is, you know, okay, all of a sudden the clouds blot out the sun and it's dark out, you know, in the middle of the day, it's dark out. And, and we're going to get into some stuff, you know, the prom, the prom queen becoming a porno, you know, porno actress, you know, mean streets and all this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's a pretty gritty record. And it also continues, you know, the path that Eddie started with women and children first, where he started to feel himself and he's getting creative. And this record, he really started doing it himself. He's like, you know what? Fuck this, man. I know what I'm doing. And he would go into the studio and they would do their stuff during the day. And he and Don Landy, the engineer, would go back at night when no one was there and they would start dicking with things. And he would be he would be doing some overdubs. This is the first record he did overdubs for, like extensively. And he would just start putting stuff on there and changing the songs. Like, you know, he's like, I know what I want to hear. And I know that I'm good enough. He, he started getting confidence because one of the things people always said about Eddie is that he was a very insecure person and he was getting confidence in what he was doing at this point. And so he went in after hours and was like, I'm making this record myself. Like, I believe in what I can do and I want to hear this. And he started doing some kooky shit with the guitars. He was layering things and it turned out phenomenal. And the label didn't like it because they were still looking for this number one hit. You know, they were looking for the, you you know, you really got me. They were looking for, you know, the Jamie's crying, dance tonight, whatever. Dude, dance tonight Unchained way. is right there. I've always said that too, but this is the, this is the poorest selling David Lee Roth record. Even with Unchained, it didn't sell as well as the other five Roth records. And I've never understood that because it's it's such a great record, man. I mean, I get it. Like the second half is, is really kind of weird because, you know, the first, first six songs are straightforward. And then you get, you know, that reggae crap and with, um, uh, um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank, but 
you know, you get the reggae song and then, and then you get, you know, Oh, push comes to shove, excuse me. Um, and then you've got, so this is love. And then you've, you've got, you know, Sunday afternoon in the park and one foot out the door. Like it's weird. That second, the second side of the record minus Unchained, but it establishes Eddie yet again, as he's taking control of the band and he's, He's like, look, I know what Van Halen is and I can fuel myself and I can fuel my creativity if you just leave me alone and let me do this. And Women and Children first started it. Fair Warning was the ultimate example. And then because it didn't sell like they hoped, and we'll get to this in a minute, it totally created, you know, it was a perfect storm to create the next record, you know, Diver Down, which we'll get to. But you know, fair warning. Again, it's a, it's a fan favorite, and it's it, it's it's funny to me that you say that you don't go back to it and you haven't listened to it, you don't dig into it. This record just absolutely slams, dude. I mean, Mean Street into dirty movies, into Center Swing, into and then it goes into my favorite David Lee Roth song. Hear about it later, and then you get Unchained, and I mean, it's God, what a great great record. And by the way, I think I misspoke. I, th I think Unchained is actually the last song on the first side of the vinyl. I think I did misspeak on that one, so I apologize for making a mistake in my Van Halen discography knowledge. Well done, John, for speaking to the vinyl layout versus the CD, which is what I have. <laughs> you said something about the vibe, and it didn't click until just now. Change the production on this album a little bit. Take it back about 10 years. This is Van Halen doing a Black Sabbath album. Yeah, it's heavy. It's slower. They tune down seemingly randomly. And other than the extreme Van Halenisms, obviously Eddie's going to do what Eddie does. But yep. the way they're playing the songs and the weird mix of the of the dirty blues mixed with it's just van halen that's, that's what i have to call it it has that vibe and then the subject matter is dave just a dick does dave just wake up and say i'm gonna write nine songs about just this one really dark subject people becoming porn stars like is dave just a dick and the band lets him get away with it or is it one of those we know what works with this band it's these four personalities and even though the brothers are over there they're the core of the music when it comes to the presentation and what the records are about is van halen successful basically because dave's a dick and he runs with a concept because i've seen the drama basically my whole life i don't know what's real and what's the story of the day dave is a dick um you know it's again like you know, I, I joked, you know, introing the show about I've read everything there is, but I actually pretty much have. I've read most of it because I, I, I seek it out and, and they all tell the story like Dave is kind of a jerk. And, you know, if you read Noel Monk's book, uh, he, he was their manager for the, you know, the David Lee Roth years. He, he says, you know, that Dave was a, he was an insecure, egotistical jerk. And the guys kind of had to tiptoe around him because they didn't want to deal with this bullshit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to that part of your question, yeah, the guy the guy was a jerk and he still is. And there was a very recent article within the last couple months in Rolling Stone about this guy that just randomly emailed Eddie Van Halen like he wasn't sure if it was actually Eddie. He found his email address somewhere on the internet. I forget what it was, but you can look it up. Um, and Eddie was like telling him all this stuff and he was basically filleting Roth. Like he's like, we've always hated each other. And he was saying, that, you know, the guy is a pain in the ass and, you know, he's a jerk and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, like it's well documented. But, you know, 
from conflict, you know, iron sharpens iron. And out of conflict, some brilliant, beautiful things can happen. And I think that was kind of, you know, the Van Halen formula with David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. You know, in the beginning, it was, you know, Dave just wanted to get with these guys because he knew that they were the band to be with. Like Dave, Dave, say what you want about him. He is unbelievably intelligent. He's he's very calculated. And and the guy's got an incredible he's an amazing head on front his shoulders. Man. Yes. He, one of the best, if not the best front men ever. And he's damn smart, dude. He knew that if he hooked up with Eddie Van Halen, that he would have a gravy train because Eddie was going to put asses in the seats. An actual train Dave, of gravy. That sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And, you know, bringing but, you know, back so the Dave, classics tonight, y'all. <laughs> Is that a show inside joke that I'm not privy to? Did I just miss something? Yes. That's okay. At least it's there for everybody else. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, Dave was smart enough to know that Eddie was the guy and that Van Halen, the, the things they were doing, like that's, that's who you hook up with. And, you know, because of that tension and everything like fair warning that this is what happens. Fair warning comes out when Eddie finally has had enough and he's about, you know, he's considering quitting his own band and he writes a dark, heavy record. And Dave is feeling that dark, heavy vibe. So he writes mean streets, you know, he, again, he writes about, you know, the prom, the prom queen being, you know, going into porn, stuff like that, you know, Sunday afternoon in the park talking about, you know, banging some married chick and he's pissed off because the husband comes home, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's, you know, Dave's attitude has always pissed me off. And I just don't like how he think he just, you know, he basically has the attitude of I'm going to serve you whatever shit sandwich I want. And you're all going to slurp it up because I'm Dave and you love me. And I've always hated that. But the guy was brilliant. You cannot deny. You cannot deny what the guy did. And fair warning is a great example of that, because as when Eddie's music gets dark, Dave's like, all right, you want to go down in the gutter? I'm putting on my water wings, dude. And I'm coming right in there with you. I'm floating right past you. And it, it, it sounds fantastic. You know, Dave didn't try to go a different direction. He didn't go, well, I'm going to write some really happy shit over this really dark shit. He's like, no, 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 no. I see what you're doing. Like, and I, I see what you're doing and I, and I raise you two more. Like he, he knew exactly what the music required and he went down there and did it. And it was, it, it, it turned into an absolutely phenomenal underrated record. It makes me wonder how much of it is the public side of the personality. Is it the lead singer, the portrayal that David Lee Roth became accustomed to? Because if you're going to be a successful everything in the 80s, you have to be flashier, you have to be louder, you have to be better than everybody else. And if you're not, you have to tell everybody you are. Now everyone's confused because everybody's saying they're the greatest band of all time. Van Halen may actually be. It's hard to not become full of yourself. And this record reflects a bit of that darkness, but again, it, it's got that vibe. And how we're going to follow this with Diver Down in 1982, I don't think we can. This record has been criticized for being cover heavy. I repeat my previous statement. In hindsight, I don't care. Your favorite Van Halen songs, whether they're original or they're someone else's music played by this band, you love it. I'm okay with bands doing a cover record. It's a trend that I'm used to because so many bands did it. When I was learning to play guitar, around the time Garage Inc. came out from Metallica, I was used to a band I like having a plethora of music and then playing a lot of covers. It was a gimmick and I liked it. I don't think this is a bad record. I think you can criticize this record for not being original content, 
or not very much original content, but I don't think you can say it's a bad record. If Van Halen showed up and played Diver Down in its entirety, it'd be a good show. Yeah, it is a good record. And it's also, it's a direct response to Women and Children First and Fair Warning because Eddie was getting more and more creative doing his own thing. He's, you know, he's like, fuck you. I know what I'm doing. And because they didn't get those giant smash hits, Dave and Ted Templeman were like, look, we need hits. So we're going to do what we did in the first record. Remember, you really got me. Remember how that was a cover and it was such a big smash. Well, here we go. We're going to do this. And the whole record was predicated on a cover that was only recorded to be a single. So this is a very unique record in the Van Halen catalog because it was not supposed to be what it was. And when I say that, I mean that it was supposed to be a well-thought-out, well-planned, well-written record that they took a lot of time to do because they had been, you know, album tour, album tour, album tour, album tour, you know, from 1978 and so on. And they were getting fried. And their manager, Noel Monk, knew it. And he was like, all right, we, you know, after the hits did not come from Women in Ch- or excuse me, Fair Warning, He was like, okay, you know, I know these guys have a great record in them, but they haven't had time to do it. So we're going to give these guys time to sit down, write a great record and actually take their time, relax and really do this. And Dave was like, well, we're on a hot streak. We've got to get something, you know, and the label wanted something, you know, in the marketplace. Let's just remind people Van Halen's still here. So they went and they decided to do Pretty Woman. So they went into the studio, recorded Pretty Woman as just a standalone single to be like, hey, Van Halen's got something out there. Remember Van Halen? Ha ha, here we are. (laughs) And it blew up. And then the label went, oh God, we need a full record. And then it became a, ah, shit. (laughs) To the point where the studio they had used for the first four records wasn't available because they had to rush in so quick that it it was already booked. So they used it. It was uh, Sunset Sound for the first four and, and Diver Down was recorded at Amigo. And they had to go in and do this. And because, you know, they were tired of Eddie's, I'm going to be creative stuff on, you know, women and children first and fair warning. They were like, we, we need to do, you know, a cover that, you know, they did. Pretty, and, and the success of Pretty Woman just, you know, added more gasoline to the fire. That was David Lee Roth and Ted Teppelman saying, see, these, these cover songs work for you guys, which is why, you know, Diver Down is more than half cover songs. You know, all, where have all the good times gone? Let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head because there's so many. Where have all the good times gone? Pretty Woman, Happy Trails, uh, Big Bad Bill, Dancing in the Streets and um, Pretty Woman. You know, there's six cover songs on this damn record. Well done, sir. Uh, dude, you know, if, I, if I'm going to call myself a subject matter expert, I better know that shit. <laughs> but, you know, th- this record is is an answer. It's, it's basically like, okay, Eddie, you had your records. Now Dave and Ted, they're going to have their record. And it did sell better than, you know, its predecessors. And fans received it better because it was back in that more upbeat Van Halen-y type of you know, vibe that everyone wanted to hear from them, uh, especially a song like Little Guitars, which again, I think is absolutely criminally underrated. A lot of fans love it and that's great. And I know that, but not enough. You know, I always look at Romeo Delight and Little Guitars as songs that while fans love them, I I, want to hear more people laud and praise those two songs because they are just phenomenal songs. And the intro to Little Guitars is another example of Eddie Van Halen wanting to do something, not being able to do it and figuring out a way. So when he's doing the flamenco thing, you know, he wanted, you know, he didn't know how to play flamenco. So he's doing the trill on the high E like, 
dun, 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 dun. you know, he, he's, he's, you know, trilling on that high E and then using his, and he's on the low E doing this stuff. It's like, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, he decided I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. So I'm going to figure out a way to do it myself. It, it's, it's a bad way to phrase it, but hopefully, you know, my point's getting across and it sounds great. And then it goes into little guitars, which is one of the most fun, upbeat, happy, bouncy Van Halen songs you'll ever hear. It, it, it's just great. You, you made a great point. It does get shit on. And, and I think that's unfair because it is, a, it's a very fun record to listen to. There are no dark moments. And it has some absolutely fantastic original stuff. Secrets and Little Guitars are two of the best songs they ever recorded. And those are bouncy, upbeat, happy, fun, you know, light kind of kind of songs. And it's great. It's time, John. The I record. said that at the beginning of this episode because we were talking about Van Halen. What I was actually trying to tell you was in about an hour, we'll be talking about the record. To me, the record. If... I am a fan of Van Halen, the band. It's because of 1984. When I was learning to play guitar, the song I heard that I wanted to play was Panama. The album that I purchased was 1984. I didn't know what I had. I was driving home or riding home from the store. Dan was probably driving the car. And I didn't know what I was in for. When 1984 starts, okay, it's got the synth. It's got the sound. I know we're about to get Jump, and then Jump starts. Jump is a great fucking song. Panama, how do I tell you how much I love you? Actually, I'm not going to get to Panama yet, because you have things to say about this album, and Jump is probably in there somewhere. And for God's sake, this is one of the best fucking riffs ever. I don't care that it's a synth. There are piano players out there, too. Hi, Brian. Great fucking song. You've got your story about 1984, and I have mine. Uh, it is the most influential record of my entire life. You're talking about, like, as a guitar player, listening to Panama and stuff. Well, I, I hadn't even listened to rock music. You know, I'm, I'm going to try and keep this short, because otherwise I'll just pontificate for a bit. But Hang on, let me refill this cup. There you go. Get the refill, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad only was into classical music, and he had told me... From when I was damn near born, he's like, oh, you know, there's tons of musicians in the family. You might be a musician. And all he would ever play is classical. I'm like, well, this sucks. I don't like this. I'm not going to be a musician because music sucks. I thought music was only classical. Dude, Bach is and, fucking heavy as shit. Uh, uh, that's a whole nother discography. <laughs> <laughs> so my older brother's nine years older than I am. So in 1984, I'm eight years old. He's 17. He's watching me one day and his best friend lived across the street. So he's like, all right, you know, he's watching me. He's like, we're going across the street because he wanted to smoke weed with his buddy. And he's like, all right, go down in the basement because he knew they had a bumper pool table. I'm an eight year old kid, little kid. And I like bumper pool. I thought it was cool. They had a bumper pool table. So he locks the door. I'm down there for like an hour. Finally get bored, go upstairs. The door is locked. I can't get out. So I go back down and they've got this giant stereo system, like big speakers and shit. You know, are you, are you I'm saying like, they right, have a sound system from 1984? Uh, Yeah, that's exactly what I'm Big <laughs> fucking exactly. floor speakers. Oh yeah, dude! Yes. On either side of the, on either side of the giant like cabinet Coming tube television. Range, yeah. Oh yeah! So there's a tape on top of the, uh, on top of the you know the stereo. It's there's no case to it. It's just a tape, and it says Van Halen 1984. And I I'll never forget this. I I thought ah shit, Van. This is like that Ludwig van Beethoven crap. God damn it! All right, but at least it's something. <laughs> so I put the tape in. 
and the you know the synth intro hits. I, I really did, man. I really did. I saw Van, and I'm thinking Ludwig van Beethoven. Like I was eight years old, you know, and all I had, all I'd ever known was classical. Ludwig van is the shit. Not to my eight year old ears, they, he wasn't. So I put the tape in because it pissed off because I was expecting Ludwig van, and I was like, fuck that guy. <laughs> but it, I was bored, so I'm like, let's do something. So the synth intro 1984 hits. I'm like, all right, well, this is kind of like that, you know, Mannheim steamroller stuff. Dad plays every once in a while. Okay, whatever. Good call. And then Fucking steamroller, man, the, dude, I do know a few things outside of Dream Theater and Van Halen. Not very many, but a couple. Put your Gatlin <laughs> gun down, John. <laughs> Look at you. Look at you with the pun. So jump this. comes in. And like you said, excellent sh- uh, shirt choice, by the way. The riff to jump comes in, and I'm like, ooh, what is that? And then the drums, I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And then Dave starts singing, and I'm, I'm a little kid, and I'm like, I'm bouncing. I'm like, yeah, like, okay. And then the guitar solo comes, and I go, what the fuck is that? What is that? What What is that sound? What What? What is that? I, I What is that? And then it goes back into the rest of jump. I'm like, holy shit. You know, song fades out. Then Panama comes in, and officially... At eight years old, my mind and my brain explode and my life was going to the left and it instantly and it instantly goes to the right. And everything changed for me with Panama. And then the record played out, you know, Top Jimmy, Drop Dead Legs, Hot for Teacher, you know, all this stuff. And I I replayed that album, I think, four or five times that day. And my brother actually had to come get me. It wasn't me being bored, locked in the basement anymore. It's like he had to drag me out of there because I'm listening to motherfucking Van Halen. And of all ironies, the song that got me into electric guitar, as I said, you know, a second ago, is Panama. I was like, holy shit. It's the right answer. We, Well, we didn't have cable at that time. When we finally hooked up cable a few months ago, I'm like, I want to see MTV because my friends had MTV. And I wanted to see what it's all about. No joke. Cable comes on. Hour later, dad's like, okay, you can scroll through and see what cable's about. I, I go to MTV. Go to MTV. The first video that pops up, I mean, right at the beginning, the plane. It was Panama. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is oh that band. This is those yep. guys. I was like, it's Van Halen. Holy shit. So that was how I got into it. And then when the Hot for Teacher video came out and I saw Eddie doing the solo walking down the table, that was when I went, I, I want to be Eddie Van Halen. Like the way I'm feeling right now watching this and listening to listening to Van Halen, I want to do that. I want to make people feel that way. And literally to this day, dude, I started playing in bands when I was 18 years old. I'm 46. So we're talking 28 years now. Every single time I've gotten on a stage, I don't care if I'm playing to like 5,000 people or a single person, both have happened. I am still that little eight-year-old kid up kid up there going, holy shit, I'm on a stage. Oh my God, this is like what Eddie Van Halen did. <laughs> I'm, it, that innocence is still there because of Van Halen's music, because of all the stuff I've read about Eddie himself. Like his, I, we were talking earlier about his attitudes and his beliefs of what music is and being humble and just being a dude who wants to play. Like It all stems from the 1984 record. It all stems from Panama and Hot for Teacher and Jump. And it's cliche to say that because those are the hit songs, but that's what hit me as an eight-year-old kid, man. I was a little, I was just a little dude and the record changed my life and Eddie Van Halen changed my life. I mean, I I wouldn't know you without Van Halen. I mean, literally everything was different. I mean, most of my life is because of music and things I've done in music. So had I not discovered Van Halen, gotten into music, we wouldn't be doing this right now. And that's why it's such an influential record. And I did pontificate, so I lied. 
earlier. But <laughs> you know, getting back to the record itself. It's okay, John. Um, I wouldn't know you without the Talk To Me podcast. <laughs> well, there you go. See? And See uh, when I'm on stage, I, I, I want to be James Hetfield. I have to be honest. It's not going to happen, but that's what I'm thinking in the back of my head. The guy holding the guitar slumped over slightly, singing downward into a microphone. That that That's me. That's that's what I want to do. Uh, but you just want to say between songs, little beer from my throat. That and yeah, I say yeah a lot. Um, it knows yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, you know, later on in life, I decided I want to be Lemmy. So full of whiskey and the most badass rock dude on the stage. I'm just going to say it right there. The most you metal could, guy on just, stage. You could have just stopped that most badass. <laughs> that would have been better. Up. Actually, what yeah. I just said would have been better if I had just said what you said. So right. continue yes. this pontification, as it were, since we're using there classical we terminology. And now that I know you're a fan of Ludwig van, we're going to talk about some symphonies at some point in the future. Not Symphony X. We already did that. You weren't listening. I'm not a fan of Ludwig van. But back to 1984, as you said... And we talked about how Diver Down was a response to Women and Children First and Fair Warning. Well, 1984 is a response to the previous five records, especially Diver Down, because the Diver Down experience was when Eddie started building his own studio. And obviously, everybody knows that is 5150. Fuck yeah. And dude, he basically, after Diver Down, he was so unhappy he basically said, fuck you. I can make a kick-ass record. I'm doing this on my own. I don't need these goddamn studios. And the band was afforded the time that they had wanted for the Diver Down record to actually sit there for a good long time and write and think things out and just do it the right way instead of, okay, you know, you got, you know, 10 days. Like Van Halen too, I think it was 10 days. They, they you know, recorded it. It was just so quick. And 1984 was Eddie, you know, kind of responding to those other records and going, fuck you, I can do this. And fuck them. He did it. <laughs> I mean, this was the ultimate statement. And there, this was not a problem-free record. It was insanely problematic because, you know, Eddie and Don Landy took over the whole damn kit and caboodle and they just ruled the roost to the point where they couldn't get the goddamn master tapes out of the studio because... Don and Eddie were so they they were so meticulous about it. They weren't happy with the mixes and the labels like we need we need the tapes, we need the tapes. And Ted Templeman would go up there and as he was pulling in, they would have somebody run out the back door with the tapes and say, "Oh, that guy's gone." Then Ted would be like, "Oh shit," and leave. And then the guy would come back in the door and be like, "Okay, let's keep working at it." And I mean, there's it, it, anybody listening, if you want to just look up the stories about the making of 1984 and it was a pisser. But the proof wow. is in the pudding, because when the record when the record came out, it was absolutely gigantic, and it absolutely cemented Van Halen. If they weren't already like the American hard rock band, they definitely were with 1984, and they're one of the few bands that have not one but two diamond albums. You know, say what you want. Like we we're talking about how we prefer the Sammy stuff, and all four of Sammy's records, as we'll get to in a minute, were number one. With David Lee Roth, they never had a number one record. They had their only number one single, which of course was Jump. But they bookended six records with Diamond and Diamond. Van Halen won in 1984. It's it's incredible. You know, it's it, it that kind of success is unsurpassed. It's it, again, it shows Eddie's incredible songwriting ability. 
because the first record was him as a kid writing this stuff just raw and and from the heart and everything and just it was a beautiful record it was full of energy and youth and six years later he's you know whacked out on booze and coke and he hates his lead singer lead singer hates him and there's all this drama and drugs and alex van halen is so deep in a bottle of vodka that he's like literally having hallucinations and driving to his parents' house in the middle of the night and, and sleeping with them like he was a little kid. I mean, again, read Noel Monk's book. That's a legitimate thing. And yet among all this, you know, taking all this time on 1984, they have the exact same success, if not bigger. And so both sides of Eddie, it just shows that innately he was a phenomenal songwriter and musician. And you get stuff like, you know, Top Jimmy, again, a criminally underrated song. He, he plays a Ripley guitar where each saw each string, excuse me, on the guitar is panned to either side. So if you listen to the song in headphones, you can hear but it's like left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. It, it's unbelievable. And Drop Dead Legs, he was just like, let's write a simple song. So he does. Hot for Teacher, absolutely legendary and one of the most unique song structures ever put you know, put down on, on tape by a band that was not known for being, and I hate to use this term, so I want to get your opinions. It's a little bit progressive. You know, they're known as just a straight ahead rock band and Hopper Teacher sounds like a straight ahead rock song, but it is not. That is a weird, weird song. If you really dig into the actual song structure and what they did in that. It is a boogie. It's not a rock song. And I say that because as a young guitar student, student of the game, person trying to figure out how to do all the fancy stuff. Two songs that stood out to me were Satch Boogie and Hot for Teacher. Trying to figure out the structure of the song is not the point. There is an entirely different approach to music that predates this record and exists today in some of your rockabilly and psychobilly camps, and even in jazz, where you use the chromatics to build tension and this is an expert example of throw out everything but the vibe. The band has a chord. We're playing fast. Blues it up. You've heard this A with a C bend in the middle riff 10,000 times. Everybody's done that. ZZ Top, Spirit in the Sky. Just saying you've heard this before once or twice. ACDC did this so many times. ACDC wrote one song and played it 10,000 times on their own. That's not my point. I love ACDC, by the way. <laughs> but this type of tension is something that you heard in, in bop, in hard bop. It's more akin to jazz and punk rock, as polar opposite as those things can be than it is to what the majority of rock bands were doing in the 80s. But it was a fun musician trick. It was a way to shout out to the musicians in the audience, but still entertaining everybody who was listening. Hey guys, we don't have to stick to the structure. We can just break it down a little bit, slide in, slide out, and then get right back into the groove. I think I saw more than one video of Eddie he would show up and play with anybody's band. He was on Letterman a few times, playing with Paul Schaefer and his band. He played a yep. couple Les Paul tributes. And almost every time you saw him after this record was released, he was playing Hot for Teacher with that band. Not because <laughs> right. it was a really good song, but because it was a good groove and the band was yep. into it and it wasn't a Van Halen song. It wasn't a song that you couldn't play if David Lee Roth wasn't in the room. So here's Hot for Teacher. It's just a really cool groove. It shows off that Eddie 
is a good writer. It shows off that Alex can play a bit faster. I can hear the conversation in my head. I've been part of that conversation. Can we just play something and play fast? Yeah, faster. Just get stupid. (laughs) And then this is what comes out. So I feel like that's what this is. It's not normal to Van Halen, but this is what happens when you push those guys to do something. Just do it right now. And I'm convinced the overdubbed drums in the beginning, I'm convinced that's a mistake. Somebody started the track at the wrong spot and what we got was that and happy accident, somebody caught it and said, no, 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 no. It's cool because of the way that it it overdubs and lays on top of itself. Somebody cut a piece of tape wrong. I don't care what the answer is. It's a good accident. Now, are you talking like are you talking about the second the song kicks in that you're talking about that? Yes. Five seconds well, in, he, you hear two drummers. They're both Alex. Okay. You're not hearing drums. You're hearing one drummer. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna drop some Van Halen knowledge on you. That is Eddie Van Halen's Lamborghini. The brr, 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 brr. he was recording the tailpipe of his Lamborghini. And then when you and then when you can tell it's an actual drum coming in, like it does sound like two drummers, when you hear like, "Oh, here's the second drummer." No, that's when the drums actually kick in. The thing before is Eddie's car. How many and times is Van Halen going to go back to the well and put their fucking car on the album? Dude, I, it's twice on this record. It's fucking cool, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's twice on this record. Um I, I'm really glad you brought up the boogie thing cuz they do go back to the boogie a couple times, you know, in the future. And it sounds great. Boogies are a fun way for guitarists to show off. Yeah. But I think the other thing I'm glad that you brought up was the speed thing. It's like, oh, let's play fast. Because I think there's a song on this record that doesn't get the credit it deserves. And it's Girl Gone Bad. Because that song moves and it's fast. But if you listen to the instrumentation with the drums and the guitar, you know, outside of the, you know, like Eddie's holding, he's just holding out chords. And Alex, the song is fast because it's a very simple drum beat. It's not like it's fast and busy. It's they're both doing such simple stuff, but the song is like you're headbanging like a motherfucker, and it's so simple and so in the pocket, man. And, and people just don't talk about that. It's, you know, it's one of those musician things, obviously. But when you talk about the boogie, I think, you know, Girl Gone Bad is not a boogie, but it's one of those things that gets overlooked, kind of like how Van Halen it, were absolute masters of the boogie. You know, like I said, as, as I said, it's going to come up later. But Girl Gone Bad just doesn't get the credit it deserves for being super simple, but it moves and kicks ass. That song is a goddamn freight train, absolute freight train. And, you know, they teased it at the US Festival in 1983, you know, their drunkest show ever. Uh, And, you know, they were in the middle of a jam and they just started playing Girl Gone Bad. And, you know, I can't imagine what that was like for people like they're in this jam and, uh, you know, you know, 350,000 people are just hammered off their ass and Van Halen just goes into a jam and you hear this like, and you're like, whoa, God, that rocks. And you're like, oh, they're just making it up. Oh, no, it ends up on the record. And another case of Eddie, like, oh, look at this great idea that I have. And he just he brought it out live. He's drunk. He's like, fuck you. I'm just going to play this thing. <laughs> like, It's more of Eddie doing what Eddie does. And the, the record closes, you know, with something we talked about earlier, you know, going back to the vault. House of Pain was written. You know, during the time of the Gene Simmons demos in 1976. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm really glad you did that because I was going to do it if you didn't. <laughs> but, you know, they had that song, you know, on the Gene Simmons demos in 1976. And here we are in 1984. And here comes House of Pain, you know, a rewritten version, obviously. But, you know, Eddie goes back to the well and it's an absolutely kick ass song. And it, that is a nasty riff. You as a guitar player, like, like that is a that song just jams. It's it's you know Van Halen is very good at at ha- giving you just enough, and you're like, okay, well, cool, I'm good with that. It's like four minutes, you know, three and a half, five minutes, whatever. House of Pain is one of those songs. You're like, God damn, I wish that song was longer. Because <laughs> like, it fucking rocks, man. If Van Halen has perfection, it's the first record and the last first last record of David Lee Roth's tenure with the band. I do think Van Halen and 1984 are perfect. They may not be perfect records, but they're perfect to me. It's a perfect hour of music, experimentation. I believe if I see this band live, it sounds like this. So what happens in the next two years, John? In 1986, we get 5150, which despite being a trademark for Van Halen for a long time, till the end, honestly, It's just cool. But this band is not the same Van Halen. It's not the same vibe. It's not the same production. I assume they are recording in their own studio at this point. And that's why it's called 5150. You are correct. But you have a new singer. You have a new vibe. And I want to get it out of the way early. If all of David Lee Roth's songs are about getting girls and being the most important thing at the front of the stage. Sammy Hagar's songs are about hanging out and having a good time and loving everybody. I'm also ashamed to admit that for a long time, I thought I Can't Drive 55 was a Van Halen song because I saw him play it with them so many times. <laughs> it does fit, man. Hell, I, I, dude, one way to rock, another one that they played all the time with it. My band closed the show tonight, or this afternoon, I should say. My band closed the show this afternoon with One Way to Rock. And, uh, you know, that sound, the way that they played it, you know, Van Halen, they did it back in the day, sounded like a Van Halen song, not a Sammy Hagar song. So I can't fault you for that. Two years later, what happened? Well, during the touring for 1984, Dave started recording a few solo tracks. And, you know, California Girls, he was really proud of. And he, he did his crazy from the heat thing and he was just going to do his little solo bit. And it was the beginning of the end, man. Eddie had had enough of him and, you know, the guys didn't think California girls was that great. Dave wanted to do his thing and they were just finally so sick of each other that they couldn't, they couldn't work together anymore. And with Dave doing his solo thing and, you know, basically, you know, in the Noel Monk book, you know, they, they were, you know, Alex was so far into, into his alcoholism. It was ridiculous. Eddie was so coked out. It was crazy. Dave was on such an ego trip that, you know, he was basically uncontrollable and then he does the solo stuff. So they fire Noel Monk. And, you know, a couple months later, Dave ends up leaving the band because he just thought he was bigger than, you know, what he was. He figured I'm, you know, the front man of the biggest rock band in the world and everybody loves me. It's not all about Eddie Van Halen. It's about me. I, you know, obviously I can go do whatever I want, you know, especially considering, you know, California Girls had come out was a massive hit. So he's like, okay, I got this. And then he was, you know, to hear him tell it, 
he was tired of the Van Halen's just sitting on their asses. He wanted to go, 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 go. And they just wanted to kind of like relax and take some time and do their thing. And, you know, again, substances played a big part in this. But the, the rift was so, so vast between the two parties that it just it wasn't it, it was not a tenable work situation anymore. Dave leaves, thinks he's going to be the biggest thing ever. Van Halen wonders, can we continue? You know, they have the little flirtation with with, you know, Patty Smythe couple other people eddie considers doing you know a record with a whole bunch of singers phil collins and you know guys like that and, and you know and alex talks him out of it oh that would have been right, weird dude could you hear van about, halen playing in the air tonight dude eddie wants to try everything he you know he, one of his most famous quotes is you know if i want to play bavarian cheese whistle i'll play bavarian cheese whistle because he doesn't give a shit you know he he you know Going back to the covers thing, he always said, I would much rather bomb with my own music than be successful with somebody else's. The guy doesn't give a shit. He wants to play. You know, like he always said, like Dave is a rock star. I'm a musician. And that that's all Eddie cared about is playing. And he's like, I'm going to play whatever I want. If you want to buy it, cool. If you don't, cool. I don't give a fuck. It's what I do. I'm a musician, so I just put stuff out. So you know, he, you know the the whole All Star record, like you said, like can you hear Phil Collins with Van Halen? No, no, I can't. I don't want like, to. You know, yeah. I mean, he's talking about like Joe Cocker and guys like that. This thing, you know, it's weird. Now weird that would have been vocalist. cool. I'm feeling Dude. all right, but it's Van Halen. That would have been cool. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. But um, you know, Claudio Zampoli actually uh, is the man that we can thank. For, you know, the clouds parting and the angels singing and Sammy Hagar coming into the lives of the Van Halen brothers and Michael Anthony because Claudio Zampoli is a car mechanic who actually you can see Sammy talking to in the beginning of the I Can't Drive 55 video. Come on, John. And you know you have it in you to say it the right way. Yeah. I Can't Drive 55. So. Well done, yeah. sir. Well done. It's as good as you're going to get. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, so Claudio Zampoli had a high-end mechanic shop. He was actually a salesman for Ferrari. I believe it was Ferrari, either Ferrari or Lamborghini. But he had a repair shop, and he all the rock stars would take their cars to him. And, you know, Sammy had a car in there. It was basically a race. It was a Ferrari, but it was like one of the top-end ones, which in his book, Red, My Uncensored Life in Rock, which is a phenomenal book if you have not read it. Uh, he says that like his, the tune-up on his car basically cost the same as buying a regular streetcar. And as he's in there, uh, you know, drops his car off. And Eddie had his Lamborghini in there, and he comes in and you know he sees Sammy's car, and he goes to Claudio. He's like, well, "Man, that's a sweet car. Whose car is that?" And Claudio's like, "Well, that's Sammy Hagar." And that led to Claudio giving Eddie Sammy's number and, and he called up Sammy and they had a couple jams and Sammy was ready to get out of the music business at the time, which is kind of one of the ironic things. And he just wanted to go down and jam with Van Halen. He's like, man, maybe I can have Eddie write some songs with me, whatever. But, you know, he describes in his book that, you know, he went and played. He was totally fried. But when he went back and, and you know, they had tapes recorded. And when he went back and listened to the tapes, he was like, I, I felt it. I heard it. It was so unbelievably just grooving and powerful. And Don Landy was all into it. And everybody that heard it was like, wow, this is great. And off, off they went with Sammy Hagar as the lead vocalist. Yes, Sammy Hagar brings a different vibe to this band, but it still sounds like Van Halen. I don't think they made it work. I think they moved to the next step. The strangest part of this record, what stands out to me is... 
Alex's drums. Digital toms with acoustic everything else. I'm not going to pick on it because I've read that book and I've heard that book in the 80s. Let's be honest. Digital drums were a fad. It was the thing that everybody was trying to push. That sound, the Def Leppard sound, the Pyromania sound. But I could see Alex sitting there going, yeah, I can do that, but I need my snare. Alex Van Halen has one of the most interesting snare sounds because he doesn't change it. He does not copy anybody. He doesn't have the Bonham snare. He doesn't have the Gene Hoagland snare. It sounds to me like dude bought a drum set and cranked it, and that's the sound he kept till the very fucking end. And I'll give him those props. So, okay. I love that you bring that up because that's something that never gets mentioned except for it, you know, the times you're talking to a musician who knows drums. That like Eddie's guitar sound, like you ever hear something come on the radio, like when you heard Beat It, for example, the guitar solo kicks in, you're like, oh shit, that's Eddie. When you hear Alex's snare, you know that's Alex fucking Van Halen. And to your point, it always sounded the same. He's he's got that sound. He's got that sound to the point that Eddie was on record many times as saying that what we call the brown sound for his guitar was not actually where that term originated. The brown sound was actually used to describe Alex's snare sound. So, I mean, it's it's just iconic. And, you know, again, if you're a musician, you know it. If you're a Van Halen fan, you've read up on it and everything, you know it. But the average, you know, just music fan who's kind of into Van Halen, they don't realize it's there, but it's always there. It's like that 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 beat up pair, your favorite pair of beat up jeans or shoes. It's always so comfortable. You know, you can wear your nice new ones and go out and have a great time, but you always come back and there's always that old beat up favorite pair that's just it's always there for you. It's solid. It's there all the time. And I don't think the digital toms are an 80s decision. I think this is an early recording of what was or would become the epic 5150 studio because i i swear i can hear the sticks hitting the pads which tells me they had a smaller room or a smaller space than they needed and they were just trying to control the extra noise but who fucking cares this album is huge and controversial statement in coming i think sammy hagar is a more skilled lead vocalist than david lee roth I think he how has, is that kind of, I started to catch up. How 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 is that controversial? No one can deny that. Even the most fervent Dave Honks, and believe me, they're out there, and boy are they obnoxious. <laughs> but even the most fervent Dave Honks, you gotta admit, Sammy is a Sammy is a phenomenal vocalist. Dave kinda yells. And if you do your Van Halen research, Ted Templeman had a bitch of a time recording Dave's vocals because the guy didn't have good rhythm, didn't have good pitch. So I don't think what you just said is a controversial statement. Why do you think it's controversial? Because Dave is arguably the greatest frontman of all time. Sometimes the lines cross with great lead vocalist and great performer. There's a difference between your vocal ability, your technical ability, and your performance ability. Sammy Hagar is a cool fucking dude. If I get to hang out at his fucking place one time in my life, I'll consider it a success because I'll probably get dragged on stage. That's how fucking cool he is. Yep. Dave is the epitome of the 80s front man. It's all about me. And other vocalists do the exact same thing. 
Freddie Mercury commanded the fucking stage. Yes, it was about him, but it was about the band. It was about the music, and it was about how everybody was there to participate in the fucking show. Sammy Hagar makes the vibe totally different. Everybody's there to have fun, and everybody's there to participate. Sammy Hagar is showing off the band, and I think there's a piece of Van Halen's history that you need the vibe to be a little douchey at times. And I think Sammy Hagar just cleans it all up and says, guys, no, this is the greatest rock band of all time. And I'm just going to sit here and sing and we're all going to hang out together. If anything, Sammy is an example of what everybody should be doing, but everybody's still trying to do what Dave's doing. Yeah, no, I do. I totally agree with you. And, you know, Dave himself phrased it absolutely perfectly because his famous statement was Sammy throws a party. I am the party. And you can't you can't say it any better than that, you know? Well said, and sir. That, dude, I mean, I give Dave all the credit in the world for that. And you know, he he's correct, but that's also why Dave is a goddamn douchebag. You know, it's I mean, dude, I I, I was super lucky. I got I got to interview Sammy in 2002. And if I wasn't the first person to hear this, the first quote unquote journalist to hear this, I was right in the front of that line. I was one of the first people that he told. I asked him flat out. He was. I was interviewing him about his, his upcoming tour with Leonard Skinner. And we got around to Van Halen stuff. And I flat asked him. I said, is this, you know, would you ever consider getting back with Van Halen? Obviously, the bad blood is well, you know, it's a well-traveled road. Everyone knows. And I was one of the first people he told. He's like, you know what? Yeah, like I, I would do this. I would, I would get back together with them. And me, I was thinking like he's, you know, he's going to be like, nah, fuck that. But when he said, yeah, I would do that. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sammy could be back with Van Halen. Like, and it was awesome because, you know, we went on to talk about it a little bit. And he was talking about how, you know, it was like a brotherhood. And even though there was bad blood when he left six years prior, he was like, you know, Eddie and I were like best friends. You know, we lived, you know, next door to each other in Malibu. And we wrote these incredible records together. And we had such an incredible bond. And, you know, hell yeah, I'd revisit this stuff. Whereas whenever, you know, it would come up with Dave, it was always, you know, we're the soundtrack to your summer. Look how great we were. Yeah, you know, I'm the one that, you know, you were listening to in your left ear while your right ear was getting licked by your first girlfriend and shit like that. Like he, he, it was always just about Dave. So you make excellent points about the fact that Sammy changed the vibe and he, he was, you know, I, th I think we talked about this earlier. Sammy's personality fits more of the comprehensive Van Halen vibe than Dave's does. Because Dave was all about, look at me, look at me, look at me. Whereas, you know, Sammy was, look at the band. Like, look at how much fun we're having and everything. Look and, at that motherfucker know, on the guitar, man. Seriously. Yes. Yes. That guy you playing know, drums, badass motherfucker. And that bass yep. player, good God. <laughs> no and, one's and, played and, and bass like him ever. Well, Sammy, Sammy like, like, yeah, he, he, he showcased everybody else. Whereas Dave... On stage, he would be like, "Oh yeah, Eddie Van Halen, but behind the scenes, guitar player of all time." I've got and yet that behind CD the too. Scenes, <laughs> I think we all do. Fuck yeah! And, but behind the scenes, Dave was saying, "You know, enough of the fucking Guitar Hero shit." You know, like, like stop with the solos on the records and everything. Like, you know, Cathedral and all that. Like, he was pissed. No, he was taking attention away from him. 
And Sammy was like, nah, dude, like Van Halen's music, like the one word that comes to mind about all of it is fun. And Sammy, his whole vibe is fun. You know, he was like the perfect singer at the perfect time for them. And they wrote the perfect record because, you know, when you're trying to replace somebody like Dave, you've said it earlier. He was, you know, one of the, if not the greatest front men ever in rock. And Van Halen, you know, they come off a run of six records, which, you know, as we said, were bookended, you know, first record, sixth record, diamond. The rest were all multi-platinum records, you know, just unbelievable success. And all of a sudden, oh, we got to change singers. And here comes Sammy Hagar. And yeah, he was successful in his own right. You know, he had VOA, he had Sandy Hampton. He was in Montrose, all this other stuff. But 5150 was the perfect record at the perfect time. Because if you think about it, and we're going to get to this record next. If Van Halen comes off of 1984, has Sammy Hagar joined the band and they put out OU812 as the next record, the whole thing fucking flops. It, it does. It Van Halen doesn't continue. It just doesn't. You know, who knows what the hell happens, but it, it certainly is not, you know, the juggernaut. It doesn't. Well, well, they don't remain the juggernaut that they were with David Lee Roth. And it continued because of the strength of 5150. And the reason is, is because you've got those guitar riffs. Those Eddie Van Halen just sm just smashing, slamming, screaming guitar riffs that you knew and loved from the Dave years. But then you've got Sammy's influence from his solo career, songs about love, you know, why can't this be love? You know, love walks in, you know, stuff like that, the pop influences. And you mix them together and it's just like a bridge between two, two eras to the point where even the most fervent David Lee Roth fans and believe me, man, like if you go on like Van Halen newsdesk.com, the Dave fans and, you know, you, you, you claim to make a controversial statement earlier. I'm going to make one now. Dave fans are, are fucking dicks. They won't give Sammy Hagar any credit. They just think the guy is absolutely the biggest piece of shit ever. And he's never done anything good. And, oh, you know, he his lyrics are terrible. And Dave is God. Even on the, you know, the, the Dave tours in, you know, 2012 and 2015, when Dave sounded like a cat getting hit by a car, they're like, Dave's still got it. He's on top of his game. Yeah. Okay, dude. What, what the fuck ever, dude? You, you know, you, you can like David Lee Roth and Van Halen still, and still be honest and say he sounds like shit. So those guys, even those guys, you'll see them on Van Halen news desk in the comment section, or if you're on blabbermouth on a Van Halen or Sammy article, and they will say 5150 was a kick-ass record, you know? So the people that wanted nothing to do with anything past David Lee Roth, they love 5150. Eddie and Sammy put together the most perfect crossover record you could ever put together because it kept Van Halen alive. It was like, okay, we're still what you love, but there's a little bit something different. And then they went into something really different with OU812, which again, we'll get into. Let's get there. It's 1988 and it's weird. I don't hate it, but it's not 5150. 5150 was a definitive turn in the band's discography. It's the same band with the same chops, the same songwriting, but a different voice. And I love what Dave does. He does his own thing and he needs credit for that. But if you wanted to put Dave's thing on paper, it's, I'm gonna say the thing. It might be controversial, it might not be, but I'm trying to piss off your parents, so every line is going to end with this cat strangler shriek. And that's fine, because Dave said it himself. He is the party, so he's trying to perform. 
Dave is the little kid who's trying to show off for mommy and daddy and everybody else at Thanksgiving. Sammy Hagar is trying to sing the fucking melody. So it's all right, but it's not the same thing. Van Halen OU812, which I'm told has some meaning. You don't know that story? It's a very simple story. Tell the story, John. The people want to hear the story from you. I feel bad saying this because people listening are probably like, duh, we know this. But yeah, it's it's very, very simple. Uh, David Lee Roth put out Eat Him and Smile, which was part of a comment from an interview where Dave felt like the Van Halen brothers were just dissing him in interviews. And Dave said, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it up in front of me, but it was, you know, he's like, you know, people, you know, the Van Halen brothers demand a comparison. The, the fans, you know, the, the people demand a comparison. It's like, okay. And I have, I didn't want to get into it, but I'm going to get into it. All right. You want a comparison? You know, me and Sammy and, and Van Halen, like, like, you know, I'll eat you for breakfast, pal. And so the, you know, his solo record was eat him and smile. And OU812 was, oh, you ate one too. And it was kind of like an answer to, all right, yeah, eat them. And okay, well, we ate, we won't ate one too. Like it was just kind of like a, you know, tongue in cheek, like yeah, whatever, dude. Like it's pretty fucking funny. Just, I'm not going to lie to you. Dude, it's like brushing a bug off your shoulder is basically the album title. So, Hi, we're Van Halen and this is our new album. Yep. And David Lee Roth, you don't matter. So, yeah, so there's there's the story. So the 80s were a weird time, John. People were taking shots at each other with vinyl. <laughs> right. They just pulled yeah, out this I, big Gatlin gun and we're like, ah! you're going to do that again. Seriously, I'm going to call so, back to that as much as I feel like. Eventually, you're going to have to do a discography discussion about my band Gatlin if you keep this up. But we're never going to do that. I, so I talked about you on Patreon once. Oh, boy. Please don't. <laughs> But yeah, so that's where the album title comes from. And, you know, you were going somewhere with what you were talking about. And I, I think I'm going to continue it. Actually, no, let, let's hit a pause. You were going somewhere like after I told the story. So you were going to say something. So I told the story of the album title. So then you get back to your point because you were about to make a really good point. I what think. was I talking about? Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, about the thing, about the thing. No, I think I finished it. I was, I was trying, I was trying to build the premise of like Dave's fine, but Sammy's great too. Sam, okay. Sammy is great. Dave is great too it's fine so that's the story of the record and i feel like you were about to make a point but i just have to say something before you do i feel like and again controversial statement you know hot take like don't do the fucking horn you bastard it's 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 funny it's just funny (laughs) i'm leaving it in dude why wouldn't you (laughs) all right so controversial statement this might be the most controversial statement of the whole damn thing I think OU812 is the single most underrated record in the Van Halen catalog. And I say that because when you listen back to everything, you know, you can go through the Dave stuff as one chunk. You go through the Sammy stuff as one chunk. And OU812 is one of those records that people, you know, generally the opinion is, well, you know, 5150 was so good, but now you get OU812, which is soft. It's light. Sammy Hagar himself said, it's not my best lyrical material. And after it, you know, we'll get to these records later, you know, afterwards, you know, comes for unlawful carnal knowledge and balance. And then, you know, you get into a different kind of truth and stuff like that, you know, Van Halen three, but OU812 for a fan of Van Halen is a record that you always come back to. And I've had so many conversations with, with people that love Van Halen, like I do. And we're talking about different records. Like, you know, we talked earlier about fair warning. And you're like, oh man, like that's like such an underrated record. Like we love it. And 
You know, we talk about balance. Like no one talks about this enough. Like that. And then you go, man, mine all mine is a great song. Like, fuck yeah, dude, that is a great song. And you go on some of this and then you go black and blue, dumb lyrics, but God, that song jams. And you're like, yeah, sucker in a three piece, horrible lyrics, but God damn it, that jams, you know? And then you get AFU, like, and the songs just keep coming up in a one, like, like just a one-off basis. And eventually you start to realize like, OU812 is a great listen that no one ever talks about. And I think anybody listening to this, if you have not gone back to OU812, I would suggest that you do because you'll go, you know, it starts out with Mine All Mine, which Sammy has said is one of his favorite Van Halen lyrics that he ever, ever wrote. And you go, man, this is actually a good goddamn song. And then when it's love comes on and say what you want about it, dude, that is literally my favorite song of all time. That song encapsulates everything that I love about music. And no one can see this, Joe, because this is an audio podcast, but I'm going to say this. Van Halen fans, no one can deny that when they listen to When It's Love, when the solo comes up and he goes, all of us scratch our head and do what Eddie did in the video, you know? So there's that. And then, you know, AFU comes on and then Cabo Wabo. It's like, it's a record that you don't realize that you love until you haven't thought about it for a while. And then when you go back and listen to it, you're like, God damn, this does rock. OU812 is what the soundtrack of Bloodsport should have sounded like. I'm sorry, John. I just have to say it. There was this time in the 80s where all the heavy bands were playing soft. You remember Damn Yankees, right? It's the most metal sounding band. It has Ted Nugent in it. And all the songs are fucking laid back and calm. This is a thing that happened in the 80s. It's fine. It's not the Van Halen that everybody loves, but I don't think it's bad. It's just not what everybody is signing up for if you're tapped into this band for the last eight albums. But this tells me the band was not stressed out. If they were releasing OU812 in 1988, that was Van Halen just writing some fucking songs. It's the 80s, man. Everybody was getting blitzed until they weren't. Then everybody wanted to lay back a little bit. And I I made a passing joke earlier about movie soundtracks, but seriously, every movie soundtrack in the 80s sounded like this. You know, you remember Queen wrote several film soundtracks and everybody loves them. Please tell me why Van Halen doesn't have the soundtrack credit on some of your favorite martial arts movies of the 80s. Because they're too good. They're just too goddamn good. They don't have throwaway material. And OU812 to the passive fan is considered throwaway material, but it's not. It it's just isn't, the man. slow shit, but it's 1988 but it's and it's fine. The songs are good. Forget that it's Van Halen for a second. Just listen to the fucking music. It's good. Dude, it's another progression. We've talked about progression as this episode has gone on, we've talked about the progression from record to record and, and the responses to this, that, and the other. Dude, I remember, like, like I told the story about me in 1984, my history with OU812 is that when it came out, um, I was in middle school, junior high, and a buddy of mine, Joe Valenti, he bought it. He's like, you love Van Halen? Check this out. Listen to it. I'll never forget taking it home, putting it in. I'm like, this sucks. What the fuck? I love Van Halen, but they fucking shit the bed. Like, ah, bleh. And I handed it back. I'm like, I can't believe it. This is my favorite band, but now I can't like the band anymore. And I went and bought the record for myself on cassette. And just because I'm like, I got to have Van Halen and I don't like this. And I, I just kept something just, I was like, 
I was trying to force myself to like it. And I ended up not having to force myself because as I listened more and more, I was like, oh my God, this, okay, I'm I'm digging this, man. To where now, like, you know, OE812 is the record that I will, that's the hill I'm going to die on. You know, that's the record that I will defend more than any other. I, I just think it is so goddamn solid. And again, it's another progression. You know, we, we, we talked about 5150 being a crossover record. Well, now OU812 is Eddie being like, you know what? I can write pop too and still shred. Fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you've got, you know, finish what you started. Is this like kind of acoustic twangy thing. You've got, you know, feel so good, which is like the most poppy thing they ever wrote. And then they back it up with black and blue, which is just, hey, I'm fucking a chick. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's who says Dave is the only one that can write a song about this. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, you know, dude, it's a it's a great record. And and, and as you know, I started out saying when we started talking about this record to anybody listening. If you're a fan of Van Halen and don't get into OU812, if you kind of like passively enjoy it, you're kind of into it. I, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it now and just kind of think about as you're going like, yeah, there's some great moments on this. It's a really solid record, even though the production, like you said, you, you phrased it. It's light. It's it's softer in production. I think in production, I would say in material, there are some heavy moments, but there's a lot of light moments. And I think they overshadow the heavier moments. It's a damn good listen, dude. It's a fun record. And it's just like a good summertime fucking record to listen to. Let's talk about material for a second, John. I'm going to give you two minutes. This band on record has been around for 10 years and they have released eight records. Is anything up to this point dated? OU812 sounds like when it came out, but does Van Halen reek of the 80s the way other bands do? Because to my ears, the first two albums do not sound like 1978 and they never will. They sound like they came out much later than that. So how does this discography stack up as we move into the 90s and what I'm going to call the strange times for Van Halen? <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question because I never buy into the something is dated argument. Because to me, a good song is a good song. And that having been said, if I'm trying to look at look at things through, you know, the lens of what you brought up, you know, Van Halen 1 and 2 do not sound like 1978 and 1979. I'll give you that. Obviously, we're talking about OU812 right now. Does it sound 80s? You know, now does it sound dated? Did it sound dated then? I think some people could make an argument that, yeah, it does. It did sound dated. I personally don't subscribe to that because the songs still hold up. You know, it's like when you listen to, let's say, a rat record. I fucking love rat. It's awesome. But when you listen to it, you go, oh, man, hair metal. Fuck yeah. I love dude. It, it's it's fantastic. You listen to poison. You know, the second record, open up and say, ah, you get stuff like, look, but you can't touch. You get dent, dent, is heavy riffs and shit like that. And you're like, but you listen to it. You're like, yeah, fucking poison, man. God, I love the 80s. But, but when you listen to Van Halen records, I don't think that any of them sound like a product of the times. I think they just sound like good songs. If you want to say that 
you know, something like OU812 sounds like, oh, it's dated because it sounds like 1988. I think we only say that because it came out in 1988. And, you know, Eddie got more into keyboards at this point. But he he was into into keyboards two albums ago. Exactly. This is this is Eddie Van Halen, you know, doing more of Eddie Van Halen stuff. He was so into keyboards, but it was not like the vocal feature. And as we said, 5150 is a crossover record. You start, you know, you've got the stuff in there with like, why can't this be love? And, you know, love walks in. And because that record established them with Sammy to where they're a success. Now he can get back on his, here's what I want to do. You have stuff like feel so good. And when it's love, like, you know, I don't think it sounds dated. It just sounds like Eddie progressing and doing what he wants to do. And they're just damn good songs that just happen to be recorded in the eighties. So I don't think it sounds dated. Now, again, to anybody listening and to you yourself, man, that may be me being a fanboy, but that's the, that's the way I see it, man. They're just damn good songs. 1991 for unlawful carnal knowledge an album title i still think doesn't make any sense you are wrong uh we're gonna disagree right now for unlawful carnal knowledge is a fucking great no pun intended fucking great album (laughs) title it is awesome uh this is a record by the way the original title sammy wanted it to be fuck censorship so this was like right after the pmrc stuff bravo Um, sammy Dude, and the record label talked him out of it because they're like, you guys are selling a ton of records. If if you try and go to Walmart and put out a record that says fuck censorship, like you're not going to get in all the major record stores. So, you know, he was actually training with, um, he was doing some boxing training. Somebody, one of the famous boxers, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but, and he's like, oh, you know, Sammy said, I want to call the record fuck censorship or fuck. And the boxer guy goes, oh, fuck, for unlawful carnal knowledge. And Sammy's like, what? I said, yeah, that's the origin of the word fuck. It's, you know, for unlawful carnal knowledge. They would, you know, back in the 1800s or something, you know, he, he you know, t- told Sammy the story that, you know, women that were found to be cheating on their husbands or something like that would be, you know, put in the stockades in the center of town and they would have, you know, on the wood above them would say for unlawful carnal knowledge. They're busted for unlawful carnal knowledge, which is where the word fuck came from. So that's why, you know, Sam is like, well, if I can't call the record fuck censorship, let's call it fuck, which then got changed to for unlawful carnal knowledge. And I disagree with you. It's a kick ass. It's a kick ass album title. And dude, it is a kick ass return to form. If you are an Eddie Van Halen guitar fan, because you've got right now with the piano, that is the only keys you've got. The rest is just Eddie Van Halen being like, you know what? think i'm ready to play some guitar again and play the guitar he did this might be the most dense van halen record to date and up until a different kind of truth i would tell you it's the most dense album overall i think eddie just loosened up a little bit and let the mix be what it is because at the end of the day there's value in what they've been doing they want it to sound like a live band at the same time it's a record so I have the ability to do more. Why can't I do more? Especially if you're doing just enough to thicken up the sound and make it sound better. I enjoy the sound of this record. The songs don't really stand out to me the same way they have. But I can't look back on this album and say it's bad. I'm sure the diehard Van Halen fans will find reasons to hate it. But I can't. 
find reasons to hate this record. It's good. It's not Dave, and I think that's the only complaint you can make. Two albums of Sammy, if you're that old school fan, you want more of the Dave sound because it is distinctly a different band with a vocalist like Sammy Hagar. And I like what Sammy does. I can feel the unnecessary tension in the discography, in the songwriting. The laid back is starting to sound stale to me. There's nothing wrong with the album. I just think that it doesn't hold up as well as the others. This is going to be the point in the discussion where you and I completely disagree. This record fucking kicks ass. I will say this. When you say it's a dense record and you compared it to a different kind of truth, I was thinking the same thing at the same time. That's an incredibly astute point on your behalf. The one thing that has been said about this record is that it's a lot of stuff trying to fit through a small speaker. Yes. And I agree with that. That having been said, this record fucking kicks ass. I was 15 years old when this record came out and I was biking from my hometown to the town, you know, the next town over looking at records, getting ice cream at the Baskin Robbins, going to the CD shop, buying shit, going back and forth. Like, and I burned out. I can't even tell you how many copies of for unlawful carnal knowledge. This is to me what you would call a return to form record. This is Eddie Van Halen being like, you know what? I play guitar. So here's a bunch of guitar, a shitload of guitar. And for you saying, thank you, dude, for you saying like the songs don't stand out. Oh, they fucking stand out, dude. When you look at this record and you think about the fact that on this tour, they played most of the album on almost every night of that tour. That tells you something. If a band is that confident in the material, they're not just tone deaf. They're not just like, we're going to cram it down fans' throats. God damn you, we like this new record. We're going to play it for you. No, bands don't do that unless you're just the most arrogant pieces of shit ever. But on the fuck tour, Van Halen played most of this record. And the one song that didn't get played a lot was The Dream Is Over. And that song jams. <laughs> that song kicks ass. This record, if you like Eddie Van Halen playing guitar... To me, this is the fair warning of the Sammy era because it's Eddie just going, I'm Eddie Van Halen. I'm going to give you some kick-ass songs and I'm going to play the mother fuck out of the guitar. And that's what he did. And there's so many, so many great songs on this album. This is damn near a perfect record to me. This is so the not the same band you had in 1984. 1984 may have been the ultimate album by that era of Van Halen, but this is a band that has been writing songs for over 15 years at this point. You talk about The Well, they're in The Well, and they know how to fucking do it now. It's not about finding the gem. It's about what you've learned up until this point. There is a key moment, and you know what I'm talking about, John, where you've been playing music long enough, it clicks. Yep. And even though we're not talking about technical skill, we're talking about the ability to understand your instrument, to know what needs to happen, and being able to do it without thinking, there is a moment where that clicks. And it feels like this is the record where it's clicking for Eddie Van Halen. So why do you not get into this record? Like you kind of intimated like you're, you know, it's just kind of there for you. Like, why are you not into this one, dude? I think this one doesn't stand out because there aren't hits here. 
And for somebody who's not diehard Van Halen, I'm not. I like the songs. I like the record. It's the sleeper hit. You're selling me on this one, but I don't look back and say, man, I want to listen to For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge today. Well, you've got Pound Cake. You've got Run Around. You've got Right Now. Just a Pound Cake sounds song. delicious right now, by the way. <laughs> That's I really easy to make. You know, the recipe is pretty fucking simple, right? Sammy Hagar and Eddie Van Halen writing a kick-ass rock song? Yes, I do. <laughs> but you got Top of the World. Dude, and I've got I've got two words for you. And anybody listening that is a diehard Van Halen fan is about to go, fuck yeah, dude. I've got two words for you that will describe why this record absolutely kicks ass. And it's something that all of us who love Van Halen come back to. Live, you know, live versions of it, studio versions of it, we all come back to and go, fuck yeah. I think it's the heaviest song that Van Halen did with Sammy Hagar. Two simple words, Judgment Day. I that thought you were going to say right now. No, we used to- <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon from 80s Wrestling. Oh, will you stop? <laughs> um, Dude, Judgment Day. The riff is heavy. The groove is heavy. And oh my God, the vocals on that song, Sammy's just ripping it up. It's like, like angry Sammy. And at the end, you know, we said, you know, at the end, we'll get into the live stuff. Dude, Michael Anthony and Sammy Hagar, the ah, like, you know, my voice is blown from singing and I can't hit those notes anyway. But you know what I'm getting at? The, at the ah, at the end with, with Mikey just going like the supersonic highs, like Judgment Day is absolutely kick ass. That is quintessential Van Halen if you're into heavy Van Halen. And it's like, and that song is not one people bring up because this record, you said, oh, I don't, you know, the hits, they don't have hits. There's four smash hits on this record, dude. And then you've got Judgment Day. To be fair, right now is on this record. Yes. I'm with you on that. Pleasure Dome. One of the single most underrated Van Halen songs ever. Speaking of boogies, it's not quite a boogie, but that song absolutely rips. Dude, the dream is over. Again, no one ever talks about. It's one of the most straight ahead, rocking, driving songs they've ever done. Great tune. For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge is an absolutely kick-ass record. And it is a kick-ass Van Halen record, man. This is this is one of their very best and one of my favorites in their catalog. You've convinced me, John. I'm going to spend an entire week with this album. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you a symposium about how right you were about this record. 1995 balance i appreciate the throat singing in the beginning because i've been practicing that lately (laughs) that's hard to do consistently i'm just saying real quick story before we get into this the first van halen show i ever saw was on this tour my father would not let me go to concerts until i turned 18 my older brother as i mentioned earlier in, in in the episode is nine years older than me I could have gone to the 5150 tour with him. I could have gone to the fuck tour with him. My dad wouldn't let me. So 95, I'm 19. I can finally go see Van Halen. And of all bands to open, Collective Soul. I have never seen a more boring opening band. And I'm not just saying that because I couldn't give a shit less who was opening. I was waiting for Van Halen. They were boring. So you turned your head and spit them out? Oh, is that is that a Collective Soul pun? Because I don't know anything they do besides Shine. Clearly you don't care because the fucking band wasn't there that you wanted to see until Van Halen came out. No, no. And, you know, so it's 95. It's the balance tour. And Collective Soul played for maybe 40 minutes. To me, it felt like three hours. I'm like, get the fuck off the stage. Like, 
I'm You're a 19 year old kid. for Van Halen. No one's here to see you. Well, and I, you know, it's my first Van Halen show ever. I'm a 19 year old kid. Like I have no tolerance. So anyway, collective soul gets done. The whole changeover is going on, but all of a sudden the whole place turns black and I'm losing my, I'm losing my mind. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to see Eddie Van Halen live for the first time. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm, like, I'm so ready for it. And it stays black. And then all of a sudden, Whoa, the Gregorian chants. And to this day, man, I, I've told everybody this story and I still feel it's true. I swear that chant went on for 10 minutes because I'm waiting for the boom, bam, going in the seventh seal. That chant felt like it went on forever, but it was so badass. <laughs> like, because it's like, you know, you knew what was coming. coming, John. Yes. Well, and on the record, though, didn't you think, like, when you're, oh, you're not, it's not going to come into some keyboard riff and some poppy happy thing. Like, it kind of felt like, oh, something's coming. And then you got boom, bam, eh, seventh seal, dude. So it's Van Halen. Yeah. Anything's possible. And it's Van Halen's 1995 record balance. <sighs> the record gives me an Iron Maiden vibe. I don't have what? a better way to explain it. The way Eddie is playing, the way Alex is playing, the way Sammy is pushing and pulling with vocals at times. It just doesn't sound like the same Van Halen. You said earlier, Fair Warning was a dark album. I, I think was hoping you were going to go here. This album is the darkest here. of the Sammy records. But if Fair Warning had a Black Sabbath vibe, this had an Iron Maiden vibe. You know how Bruce Dickinson tells a story sometimes? Sammy is tapped into that exact same vibe. It's not the same, but it's in the same arena. It's weird. It, it has a different feel. I don't want to call it progressive because it's not that, but it's not a normal Van Halen experience. It is in parts, but for the most part, you are dead, dead on. When you look back at this record, knowing what we know now, you can hear the tension. You can hear they were not getting along. You can hear that they were just absolutely butting heads. But in 1995, me as a huge fan coming off for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge live right here, right now, to me, it was just a darker, heavier Van Halen record. But it did sound different to the point where my dumbass was just, yeah, it's a new Van Halen record. Even I was like, yeah, this has got kind of some darker stuff. And I did think fair warning. I mean, you made an excellent comparison. It is, you know, the Sammy version of fair warning, but there are happy moments as well. And, and that's what's weird. This record to me is the one Van Halen record that's up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, seventh seal is stark and it just kind of drones, you know, but then you get, I can't stop loving you for the second song. And then the third song is drop tune. You know, you know, don't tell me what love can do. And, you know, even that, you know, again, going back to Sammy's book, he wanted it to be something positive. Like, I want to show you what love can do. And the Van Halen brothers like, no, 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 don't tell me what love can do. So there's battling even on the lyrics at this point. And then you get into Amsterdam, which I think is like the quintessential Sammy song. It's it's a quintessential Van Halen song, even though Eddie, you know, over the years had said, oh, I hate the stupid lyrics. It's about pot, whatever. Da, 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 da. And that always like struck me as something like, what are you talking about, dude? Dave basically talked about pussy and drinking the whole time for, you know, eight years. You're worried about Sammy talking about getting stoned. Like, who cares? 
But Amsterdam is an absolute ass kicker. It wasn't his drug, man. Eh, dude. And then you go, like, Big Fat Money is great. And you got Aftershock. You got Deja Vu feeling like it's a great record, but it is way up and down. I mean, there's like the highs and the lows. And I think that's what makes this record interesting. And back again, you know, when I was 19 and hearing it, not knowing that this was basically the end of the band, I just thought, okay, this is a dark record. Ooh, this is a happy song. Ooh, this is what it, it was like a roller coaster, but it was you cool. You feel the vibe just, when you don't know the drama. Exactly. That's a perfect way to phrase it. I was like into it. Like, ooh, they're happy. They're sad. Ooh, like, like this is the, this is the Van Halen record that takes you on a journey. Every other record is kind of in one particular vibe. This one is all over the place and it's cool. It makes it very unique in their catalog. And it, it, it's, it's a very special record for that reason. You know, it sucks that it had to be the last, you know, Sammy's last full record with them. But it's awesome that they had that because up until this point, you know, three Sammy records, six Dave records, you know, they hadn't had that album that is just everywhere. Why are you holding up the number four? It's four Sammy records, right? No, I'm saying, look, dude, you got you got to Let's keep up here. I said you've had six Dave records and three Sammy records. This is the fourth. I'm saying what you're listening to before. Come on, Joe. Get, get on board here. Get, get on the train. I'm on come board on. with the train, John. I'm going to go <laughs> listen to fuck again. Just for you <laughs> for an entire fucking week. Oh my God. I love you, man. But yeah, so this is the one record that absolutely just takes you on this up and down crazy fucking journey. You know, the other records were straightforward. This one is not straightforward. I mean, even to the point where Eddie brings back stuff, we're talking about like stuff in the vaults, you know, uh, you know, strung out is him with Valerie, you know, Valerie Bertinelli at Marvin Hamlish's beach house. And I think either 82 or 83, they had stayed there. And he's got this, you know, full size grand piano. And Eddie's taking forks and spoons and scraping the, he's all fucked up on booze, like scraping the strings and the piano, just destroying this, this, this beautiful instrument and recording it. You know, he takes this like multi thousand dollar instrument and fucks it up with forks, you know, just to see what it would sound like. And it ends up on 1995, you know, a 1995's balance record. It's like, again, Eddie doing Eddie stuff. So even this late into their career, Eddie is still being Eddie. It's been a fun ride, John, but I have to ask, in 1998, is this the only pass on the discography? Van Halen 3. This is a very difficult record to talk about. I actually thought about this on my way home from my gig uh, this evening because I was like, I was listening to this record and I'm going, man, I remember back in 1998, I was kind of an apologist for this record. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on here. And as the years have gone by, it's gotten less and less and less, most generic to remember, good to my ears. And when I was thinking about it on the way home, I think what it was is in 1998, I was really going down the dream theater rabbit hole. So I was getting into all this crazy progressive stuff. And I was like into this like weird music I'd never heard. So when the Sharon record comes out, you know, Van Halen three, it was weird. It was not what you were expecting. And I, yeah, I think I accepted it because I was listening to weird shit at the time. But now when I go back and listen to it, I'm like, mm, this is just not good. I mean, Gary Sharon himself has said this was a collection of demos. When you listen to the production of this, and here's another thing to go back and listen to. When you listen to the way that the vocals are recorded, all the S's and F's, they sound like, so you, so, so, so. 
it sounds like, and I, God, like anybody listening, I'm not, I'm not saying something offensive. Please don't take it this way. It sounds like anybody singing on this record had a speech impediment. It like the S's and S's and S's. It sounds weirdly and. You've been it's in the studio, not, John. You know what happens if you use too much of that de-esser. Yeah. It doesn't work. It, yeah. It was really messed up, dude. It was really messed up. And there's only a few songs on this record that really hold up. Without You sounds kind of Van Halen-y. Fire in the Hole would fit pretty much anywhere. The rest of it, man. And unfortunately, the reason the record's like this is because this is when Eddie was like, okay, I'm officially in charge. Fuck Sammy, fuck Dave. I'm the guy. This is when he finally, you know, started walking around, pardon the, t- the term, started walking around with his dick in his hand and like, I'm Van Halen. And it just did not work out. It, it didn't work out, man. I mean, the tones aren't good. The drums sound thin. It's like the first time Alex's drums sound thin. And Eddie just is doing whatever the hell he wants. And again, going back to the whole, I'll play Bavarian cheese whistle, that whole comment. At some point, you do have to keep in mind that you have an audience. And I give them all the credit in the world for me. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, if I put out something that sells 10 records, like, I don't care. I just want to write what I want to write. Cool. But you can't do this. It's just not good. I don't know what to call this. I can't I can't find a positive here. You said this was demos. It sounds like it was demos. Eddie Van Halen is walking around making all the decisions. It doesn't even sound like one of the greatest guitarists of all time making all the decisions. There's not enough guitar for it to be that. So I don't know what it is. Something's missing. Something in 1998 was missing from Van Halen. And try as they might, look at the archives, go back to the well, whatever you want to call it. This one just doesn't add up the right way. I'm not going to say it's all bad decisions. There's some interesting ideas, but that's the difference between this record and 1984. This is some good ideas. That's a phenomenal record. And calling it Van Halen 3 feels like a flex to me. It doesn't feel sincere. It sounds like the band really wants to buy their own hype. And I don't have a nicer way to say it than that. I get why you would say that, but there there is a lot of stuff to listen to here. You know, it's it has some of Eddie's most innovative guitar stuff. And not from a, okay, I'm doing Cathedral, I'm doing Eruption, I'm doing Tapping stuff. When I say that, I mean like he's playing chords on this record that you've never heard him do before. I love Eddie Van Halen, obviously, like we've been through this. I'm the biggest Eddie honk there is. But he does repeat things. You've kind of got the Eddie Van Halen trope throughout the catalog, which is totally fine, as we've said. But on this one, he plays some different stuff. And one of the things I realized when I was listening to this on my way home today was Eddie tends to go up. Like the notes go, the notes go, the notes go, the notes go, the notes, you know, that's what you're kind of used to listening to. And I realized that because on this record, the notes go, the notes go, they go down. I'm like, wait, what? Huh? That's not what Eddie does. He does do some really interesting, really innovative stuff, you know, in terms of what he does, innovative stuff. So in that respect, there's, you know, some good things to listen to. I think Josephina is a good, catchy song. Um, Fire in the Hole is, you know, the one quintessential Van Halen song, I think. And, and dude, 
Honestly, like I was telling my wife tonight, we're driving home and I'm listening to this and fire in the hole at the end when, when it's the drop tuned, like super like tuned to cue Eddie. I was like, give me a whole record of that, dude. Give me a whole record of that. Cause it's awesome. Like, so, so there's that aspect to it. So there's a couple good things here and you know, let's do it again. Controversial statement. The song that everybody murders on this record. How many say I, I kind of dig it. Really? Dude, the lyrics aren't great. I fully admit that. But the concept behind it and how raw it is and how simple and honest it is, I love. And maybe this is another controversial statement. I think people would have accepted the song more if Gary Sharon's voice wasn't on it. Because Eddie was doing his smoker voice, like going in and out. It was, you know, kind of the Joe Cocker-ish thing. We talked about Joe Cocker earlier. And then when Gary comes in, it's like, how many say hi? How many say hi? Like perfect notation, perfect this. But that's not what Eddie was doing on the song. So their voices don't blend at all. It's just battling. So I think if Gary wasn't in there to remind you that, oh yeah, there can be musical perfection in this. I think people would accept it more because you would just be hearing Eddie playing piano and Eddie singing, Eddie playing cello. Um, It would just be a simple, plaintive, emotional Eddie Van Halen moment that you'd never had before. And I think the Gary Sharon vocal kills it. Not because Gary was bad on it. It's just, it didn't fit the song. So, and again, everybody hates that song and I get it and I completely understand why. I just kind of dig it. So, you know, I, I, I think I think if you want to encapsulate this record and for anybody listening, go look up uh, Gary Sharon Van Halen. That's why I love you. And then go look up Mitch Malloy. It's the right time. Van Halen. It's the same music bed. It is a song that was supposed to be on Van Halen three. It basically sounds like musically a song that was supposed to be, you know, a Sammy tune. And when you listen to the Gary version against the Mitch Malloy version, you can hear why they picked the wrong singer because Gary was allowed to do what he wanted to do with it vocally. Mitch Malloy did what he wanted to do vocally. And there's more to that story, but we won't get into that. And you can, the Mitch Malloy version sounds like a Van Halen song. The Gary Sharon version sounds like, yeah, there's not that big chorus. It's just, it's not, you know, yeah, it's, it's a happier version of a song from Van Halen 3. It, it just, you're like, okay. But when you listen to the Mitch Malloy version, you're like, yeah, that's that's a Van Halen song. And it's catchy, it's upbeat, it's happy. And it, it it's amazing how different the two versions are. So, you know, Gary's interpretation of what he wanted to do in Van Halen as opposed to what Mitch thought Van Halen was, or what he wanted to do in Van Halen. I think Mitch got it. Like, this is what Van Halen should be. And when Gary's like, well, because I'm in Van Halen, like, and Eddie wanted me to do this, I'm going to do more of this. Just didn't work, man. It just didn't work. So hindsight being 2020, I really wish Mitch Malloy would have been given that job. You know, he was given the job and two weeks later or a week later, he was watching MTV like we all were. And Eddie and Alex and Mikey came out on stage at the MTV Video Music Awards to announce, you know, somebody winning something and here comes Dave with them. And Mitch said, well, I'm fucked. He had been told he was the singer of Van Halen. Then David Lee Roth comes out on stage and he's like, yeah, I'm not the singer of Van Halen. And basically told him, yeah, I'm not doing this. Because he knew that once the whole world sees Van Halen with David Lee Roth, he's fucked. No one wants to see Mitch Malloy. They want to see Dave. And he's like, I'm not doing it. So, you know, that's Van Halen 3 in a nutshell. A lot of good songs. I wouldn't say good songs, but kind of, you know, if you put it through the Van Halen production ring of 
solid fat guitars, solid fat drums. It would it'd be a little better, but it, it's not that. And it's just a that record does not hold up. It's just not good. It was Eddie's unfortunate beginning of his descent into his really bad cocaine and alcohol period. Too many changes all at the same time. I think this album can grow as a concept, but at the end of the day, this was the last record. And most fans, most of the people that influenced me as a guitar player never talked about it. I just knew the band from 1984. And I was aware that Sammy Hagar was the second vocalist of the band. There is value in the attempt, but at the end of the day, it's incomplete. The record doesn't work, and for the most part, it is the end. Yes, there's so much music in the vault, but for the fans, for the listeners, this isn't even the last record by Van Halen. This is, what are you guys holding on to if this is the best you've got? It just doesn't work. And 15 years would go by. John, I gotta ask, was there ever a practical inkling that you were going to get more Van Halen in 2012? Yes. Um, I have friends in the music business that uh, in 2007 let me know that Van Halen was coming back. And, you know, the whole record thing, uh, I was clued into that as well. Um, so, yeah. I, I was aware that a record was coming. It's the record we never thought we would get, you know, Dave back with Van Halen. And it's something that everyone thought should happen in 96 because, you know, Me Wise Magic and Can't Get the Stuff No More off the Greatest Hits, uh, Greatest Hits release. Those are kick ass songs. Those songs are great. And everyone's like, oh, if Dave's coming back, like, and this is what they're going to do. Fuck yeah, man. I'm all in. Like, yeah. But no, that was it. And it, and, you know, back to Dave being a pain in the ass. That's all there was because at the MTV Video Music Awards, Dave threw a fit at Eddie because Eddie mentioned his hip surgery. And Dave told him, this night's about me, not you. Stop talking about your fucking hip. And Eddie's like, yep, same Dave. See you later. So 2012, a different kind of truth. I had heard that there was going to be a record, that it was being worked on. And it was during the time that stuff was being leaked that, yeah, they're in the studio. They're in the studio. But those were leaks. I, I actually, again, like, I, I hate saying this stuff because it sounds like I'm such a cock. Like, I have friends in the music business. <laughs> but I really do have people that, you know, I, I do know people that, like, are really tied in. And they told me, knowing that I'm the biggest Van Halen honk ever, I was told, don't put, put this on Facebook. Don't put this online. But Van Halen is in the studio with David Lee Roth. There's a record coming out. And I was like, holy shit. And then I'm wondering, okay, well, we know Eddie's sober. So he's clear headed. Are we going to get back to Van Halen? Are we over the, you know, the weirdo, you know, freaking I've been to a guru and done all this soul searching shit on Van Halen three and everything. And the unfortunate tour that was 2004, which ironically was the tour that I met Eddie Van Halen. He was the most beautiful, sweet person ever. So I had a completely different experience than most people did on that tour. So it's like, what are we going to get? You know, and the record comes out, they released Tattoo, which I thought was cool. But I'm like, and I don't know how you felt about this, but I felt like, all right, this is cool. Like I was into it, but I'm like, I was expecting something that roars kind of like something like, I don't know, she's the woman. How do you feel? I'm going to ask you a question because you've been asking me questions all night. It's what I do, John. 
We do this well, thing called the podcast. We ask questions. It's a, it's a thing we do. <laughs> well, we're both hosts of podcasts, and you're a little bit better at it than I am. So, like, what is knowing what we know about a different kind of truth? When tattoo came out, and did you have the feeling like, oh yeah, this is cool, but like I was expecting something a little more beefy. Weren't, weren't you thinking that? Like, okay, this is the new Van Halen single. Like, okay. And then when you heard the record and the second track is She's the Woman, didn't you go, well, fuck me. That should have been the first single. Did you think that? Am I the only one? Like, because that's a very popular opinion. Did you have that opinion? The first time I heard songs from the Sparkle Lounge by Def Leppard, I wasn't expecting Go. I wasn't expecting a Def Leppard song that had fucking balls. Everything that happens after that song could be accused of being par for the course Def Leppard. I bring up that example because Def Leppard is a band I didn't know was still making new music when I heard that. I wasn't expecting new Van Halen. I don't think I heard Tattoo first. I think I heard this album and said the first song is called Tattoo. I don't know what they're trying to cash in on with that. It sounds like the band played She's the Woman, or they played all the songs that were on that particular reel, and somebody had the A&R guy in there, and he's like, no, dude, Tattoo, that's the song that everybody should hear first, because Dave's back, it emphasizes his vocals, it does this weird harmony thing that he hasn't done before, it's really dissonant. It's like everything that you guys have ever done, only it's thrown together into one song because that's the perception that a marketing guy is going to look for. So I understand the decision. I just don't agree with the decision. I think Tattoo is an okay song, but it sounds like it should be the last song on the record, not the first. And if it's your last song, it definitely shouldn't be your lead-in to your comeback for the version of the band that everybody wants to see. Yeah, I, I'm i a big fan of Tattoo, but I will not disagree. And when you say put it at the end, my one take on this, we'll get we'll dig into this record a little bit, you know, as we go, because I love this record. I, I think this is a crazily, crazily underrated record, but I do think it's two songs too long. You know, Big River and Beats Working. I mean, they're good. I think they could have ended on Stay Frosty. Or I'm sorry, Ice Cream Man Part 2. If you do Stay Frosty and then Tattoo, okay, I could see why you would end the record like that. So I think you make a great point. Especially because if you keep the track listing the same after that, if you open the record with She's the Woman and you're like, as a Van Halen fan, you're like, holy shit. Especially as a Dave Van Halen fan, you're like, holy shit, there's a new Van Halen record. Oh my god, I can't wait. And it comes in And granted, any Van Halen fan worth his salt knows that that song again was recorded back in the mid 70s. Doesn't matter. It's rocking and you're like, "Okay, this is Van Halen." And then what is now track 3 would become track 2. You and your blues it's one of the best Van Halen songs ever recorded. No one talks about this song. No one gives the song the credit it deserves. This is Happy Van Halen with Poetic Dave, the beautiful harmonic backing vocals. It's just absolutely classic vintage Van Halen where the backing vocals are actually the harmony that you sing. That's one thing that no one ever realizes about 
the Dave stuff is that there are many songs that we know and we love and the parts that we sing are Eddie and Mikey. We're singing that. That's the melody. Whereas Dave is doing his own thing and doing this counterpoint thing and people don't realize it. That's how brilliant these guys are. And you and your blues is a throwback to that classic Van Halen, that stuff where you're like, you know, when you listen to this song, you're not going, woman, talk about that. You know, you're going, ah, like that's the stuff you're thinking of. Absolutely. And then you get to like Chinatown. It, you know, talk about a boogie or like, you know, it's that like choo-choo train. Like I hate using that term, but it's like choo-choo train, like chugga, 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 chugga. You know, I've got nieces and nephews and they call it choo-choo train. So that's why I use that term. But, you know, it's like, you've got that. And then Blood and Fire, which is a callback to, you know, to the wildlife soundtrack. And then you've got the newer stuff like, you know, As Is, Honey Baby, Sweetie Doll, all these different things. Dude, this is like a record that some people would call a return to form. Some people would call it a great comeback record. To me, it's both. And I want to see where you stand on this, because to me, when this record came out, with Tattoo as the lead single, I I like the song, but I was hoping for something with a little more balls and a little more, it's fucking Van Halen. Instead, it was, yeah, man, it's Van Halen. But when I listened to the record, I was like, holy shit, this record is great. Like, this is like, like who has ever come back? Like, this is what you want. Like, after Van Halen 3 in 98, and you're talking about 24 years. Was it 24, 14? And my, my math is, is terrible. 14. This is exactly what you wanted. Eddie is just absolutely smoking on every track. Dave's lyrics, like he's always been a great lyricist, but if you go back and listen to his lyrics on A Different Kind of Truth, there's some brilliant shit on there, dude. It's fun, Dave. It's 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 poetic, Dave. You know, Wolfgang's bass playing, love Michael Anthony to death, but Wolfgang, you know, he kind of plays lead bass, which is something we never heard before. You know, you like intro to Chinatown. Eddie and Wolf tapping. This record fucking kicks ass. And it is an absolutely amazing return to form and an amazing comeback record and an amazing, you know, oh shit, remember us? Here we are. I can't think of another band that has ever done a record this good after being gone for that long. I think the mid-paced Van Halen is some of the best Van Halen. And this record has its moments where they pick up the pace it sounds like the live band you heard in the 2010s. So maybe production caught up with Van Halen finally, and you can have a studio record that sounds like a live band the way that band sounds when they play live. But I think the title is meant to be taken literally. I think it is a different kind of truth. I think it's a different version of the Van Halen 3 story. Somebody had to suggest calling this album Van Halen 3 Actually, because that's what it sounds like <laughs> That's awesome. It yes. is. It wants to be the real Van Halen 3, and I think it teases at something that some fans would be fine with, and I know I'm one of them. When you have multiple albums with a vocalist, and then you have another vocalist. Everybody wants their favorite to come back. There is no reason why we never got Van Halen doing two or three hours with Dave and Sammy taking turns. Do the sets, play the Sammy hits, play the Dave hits, and then have everybody come out at the end and play Panama. For God's sake, that's a thing that should have happened. 
and never did. This record teases at not the return of Dave, but the band moving forward past the drama. I don't hear drama in this record. If anything, Tattoo sounds the most dramatic to me. But that's not the point. You have three-fourths of the band in the family. They're all family. So why is it about Dave, not Sammy? Why didn't we get both? Some of these songs sound like they could have been Sammy songs, which shows the writing of Eddie and shows the writing of Alex and the band working to make the best music they can. It's that last hurdle of drama that I wanted the band to let go of. And I know Dave and Sammy talked about going on tour at one point. I think they played a couple shows, but they couldn't agree on who was going to headline. They did a whole tour. I, I saw um, I saw the second night of the tour in Columbus with, uh, God rest his soul, my buddy, Ben Boyle. Love you, brother. Um, I saw him, and it was, dude, it was crazy. But they did a whole tour. It was, it, was, it was Sam and Dave, like, you know, the rock and roll tour of the century, whatever the fuck they called it. And Sammy did his show, but Dave had basically the Atomic Punks as his backing band. And it wasn't the full Atomic Punks, but it was guys, one guy that had been in there. And yeah, you're right. Like, you know, they got together and did a tour. So, but why couldn't they do it together? You know, to your point, there was... I mean, now we're getting into, you know, unfortunately, you know, after the David Lee Roth tours, you know, when Eddie passes away on October 6th of, you know, 2020, um, you know, it all came out. And here's another thing that, um, you know, my buddies that told me about the record coming out, uh, they were going to go on tour. There was a Van Halen tour in the works in 19, I think it was late 18. It was either late 18 or early 19, but they hit me up immediately like, dude, like, this is happening like Van Halen's doing this and it's you know it's Sammy again I'm like fuck yeah so they didn't say that it was like Dave and everything but there was something in the works and you know unfortunately you know Eddie Eddie got sick and you know and, and the whole the whole day the, the whole Dave and Sammy thing you know the whole thing comes down to Dave Dave's just a fucking dick I mean you said it earlier like you you have video of Sammy singing Dave songs. And when Dave got back in the band, you have no video of Dave singing Sammy songs. And you know what? Dave said it himself. You know, he's like, I don't want to sing that. But then Sammy said it better. He's like, he can't sing it. You know, I mean, oh, so you do. I like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to lose my place because I'm starting to get emotional because we're now into the place where, you know, unfortunately Eddie's gone and it, it fucking sucks because the kitchen sink tour, you know, was supposed to be like, you know, Wolfgang opening. And then Sammy and Dave and Mikey and Wolfgang, this massive goddamn tour. And, you know, that was a real thing. You know, as I said, you know, I was told that that is something that was going to happen. And I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. And then all of a sudden, everything went on hold. And I'm like, what the fuck? It's supposed to-? It was like a year and a half. And then October 6th, man, like, it, um, say something, because otherwise I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm getting a little verklempt here. I'll give you a topic. The Civil War was neither civil nor a war. Discuss. Um, I'm feeling it too, man. Yeah. I think Eddie is undeniably one of the most influential guitarists of all time. And I think we all need to get together and decide who is more important to hard rock and heavy metal. Because many came before, but... Who turned a key on everybody more than Eddie? I don't know the answer to that. I can't point to one person, maybe Dimebag, but we all know Dimebag was an Eddie fan. 
So where is your real influence? I feel like I'm influenced by players who loved Eddie so much that Eddie rubbed off on me as much as them. So when I look back at this band and I say, here's one of the best bands you've heard, but have you really listened to them? I want everybody to listen to this band, and it's finally happening. Final thoughts on Van Halen, John Drake. Let this be your symposium, sir. Well, this would take me hours and hours, but I will dumb it down to an hour. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's difficult for me because, you know, we're doing a podcast about, you know, it's discography discussion. We want to talk about the band. We want to talk about their music and kind of be objective a little bit. You know, you can fanboy and stuff like that. For me, like, it's difficult to not just go off about how great Van Halen is. And I am very biased because, as I said earlier, you know, Eddie Van Halen changed my life. I mean, I am one of the most happily married men anyone will ever meet. And I would not know my wife if I hadn't gotten into music and started playing in bands and singing and stuff like that. I would not have. I live in Cleveland, Ohio. She lives in Lima, Ohio. Those cities are about two and a half hours apart. And I met her in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was singing on stage, playing bass. And if I had not discovered Van Halen when I was eight years old, as I said, my whole life changed discovering that, I wouldn't know my wife. And I've got two beautiful stepkids who are both crazy music heads. My stepdaughter, she likes all the rap and the hip hop. She's into that stuff. My stepson, like his two favorite bands are Slipknot and the Beatles. So he's incredibly musically like all over the map. And my wife, she loves Guns N' Roses, Slash is her guy. Eddie Van Halen's my guy. So my whole life, I, I am so happy. And I wouldn't have this if it wasn't for discovering Van Halen. And to this day, if I'm having a shit day and if something's just pissing me off, I'm like, God damn it. Like, I don't want to be upset. I don't want to be in a mood. I just throw on, you know, I just uh, I play Van Halen. Whatever song comes up, all of a sudden, if I'm down, I'm up. Van Halen is just the soundtrack to my happiness. And that's such a stupid thing to say. It's, it's, it's very cheesy, but it really is. Like Van Halen lifts me up, man, when I'm down. It's a, it's a true statement. It's totally cliche, totally cheesy. But I absolutely love Van Halen because all the things that I love about music, that's what Van Halen does. I love electric guitar. I love like 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 chunky rhythms like I love that kind of stuff. I love screaming guitar solos. Van Halen's got both of those. I love monster sing-along choruses. Van Halen has that for days. I love the driving rhythm section where like if you're just listening to the guitar, oh in the background, the drums are going like like kind of busy shit you don't notice. The bass player's doing tasty shit you never notice. Harmony vocals, all this stuff, all, you know, everything I love about music is is in Van Halen. And going back to what I said earlier, what I love the most is Eddie's attitude. It's he's like, you know, Dave, you know, Dave is a rock star. I'm a musician. And I met Eddie and he was the most humble, sweet guy ever. And I love that. I absolutely love that because to me, like if you're in a successful band, if you are super into music, if you're just like the tiniest little dude who just loves a little bit of this, that, and the other, it's always great to be humble. It's, I'm making no sense on this last point. I'm losing my point because I'm getting drunk. <laughs> it sounded good from do. over here, John. Well, but my favorite part about it all is, you know, Eddie Van Halen, like 
he's just a regular guy. You read all the interviews and he's like, dude, I hate the rock star shit. You know, he talks about, you know, well, Dave's, you know, Dave says, I'm a rock star. And Eddie says, I'm a musician. And I love that. I love the humility. Like, it's just about getting up there and playing. He just loves playing guitar. He just loves doing what he's doing. And, you know, the music is phenomenal, but it's the attitude that really draws me in as well. And maybe more so than the music. It's just amazing that somebody that talented, that successful is just so down to earth and just gets it. You know, you're not you're not better than anyone. You're just more lucky. And Eddie always got that. And he said it himself. He, he, he said that many times. I'm so lucky to do this. And I love that he had that humility. He influenced everybody. So many, so many guitar players always like talking about Eddie Van Halen. And by so many, I mean like millions. And yet he's just a dude. He's just a dude. And I, I, I am so grateful that I got to meet him and see that for myself, that he was just a dude. And I love that. So the music is fucking phenomenal. The songs are great. There's this crazy progression, as we've discussed, Joe, you know, throughout the course of this episode. But what always remains is Eddie just being a good dude and writing kick ass songs and just fucking bringing us on this incredible musical journey to where no matter what he does, love it, hate it. This one's okay. This one's, you know, Van Halen three, eh, you know, diver down, whatever, you know, oh, you went to, you love it all because it's Eddie and it's catchy and it's good. I just fucking love Van Halen, man. They're the soundtrack to my life. That is the worst cliche you could ever use, but it's true for me. Van Halen is the soundtrack to my life. They're my guideposts of what I want to do on stage. And Eddie Van Halen is, you know, he's the one that fucking, you know, guides what I do. And it's a beautiful thing because he was a great fucking person. He was a great fucking musician. And Van Halen fucking rocks. I can't top it. I can't even par it. <laughs> this is a straight bogey. I love Van Halen. And I think everybody loves whatever version of Van Halen they have on the radio at that moment. So listen to Van Halen. We're past drama being important for the success of a band or for them to sell records. It's time to start listening to the music. Listen to the players. If you like Dave, if you like Sammy, whatever. The songs that make up this band's discography are some of the most sincere and consistent writing in the history of rock and roll music. If anybody wants to say Eddie Van Halen gave everything on the first album and didn't really contribute after that, I think you're missing the point. Does the song need him to do anything more than what he's doing? Or are you looking for innovation when the innovator has already set the bar that nobody can really touch? Does anybody else have the confidence to lay down a three-piece and a vocalist and effectively not change the production style for three fucking decades? Listen to Van Halen. You don't need me to tell you that. Enjoy it. John Drake, what's your album of the week? I have a DVD of the week. Ooh! Ooh! <laughs> that was about the best Shaggy... And, and Scooby impersonation I've ever heard. I can't decide which one I want to use. Well, you do them both great, so. Thank you very much. M my DVD of the week is Live Without a Net. 
Because if you want to see the heart and soul of Van Halen, right at the crossroads of Dave and Sammy, if you want to see quintessential Eddie Van Halen live without a net, go buy it, go rent it. You can find it on YouTube, but live without a net. Live without a net, dude. It's live without a net. It's motherfucking Eddie Van Halen at his peak. So that's my pick. It's it's not an album of the week. Um, It's a DVD of the week. This episode of Discography Discussion was recorded on August 20th. 2022 and yesterday i found out that one of the most influential drummers and one of the best musicians in hard rock heavy metal but especially in the christian metal side of the house ted kirkpatrick passed away what really no really the spy hunter over on our discord server discord.discussmetal.com posted a screenshot from Facebook. It looks like Ted's wife posted on the official tourniquet page and said that he had passed away. It's unfortunate. I'm shocked, and I'm not sure what to say. I'm never sure what to say in situations like this, especially with it just happening, but I spent the day listening to Vanishing Lessons by Tourniquet, one of my favorite albums of all time, and definitely one of my favorites by that band. And it hit home a little bit when we started talking about Eddie because it's not that long ago that Eddie left. So I want everybody to listen to music and enjoy it this week because there are so many talented people that seem to rapidly be leaving us. And it's starting to starting to weigh on my shoulders a bit how much good music there is and how much everybody's still talking about the lead singer drama from 20 years ago. Get over it. Just enjoy the fucking music, guys. Hard to argue that, man. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. John Drake, we fucking did it. And we were drinking the whole time, so I'm sure we sound a little slurred. But you know what? It wouldn't be a Van Halen episode if we weren't taking our whiskey home. So, you know what? Dude, Van Halen fucking rocks discography discussion fucking rocks and thank you for having me on again man i've always had a blast dude what's it been dream theater motley crew guns and roses and symphony x and And now van fucking halen did i say dream theater twice by the way you absolutely did but i'm gonna let you have it because well you're co-hosting the show john well i did that on purpose because i hope that you guys who are listening if you like dream theater Go check out Talking Into Infinity at Dream Theater Podcast. And if you like nerd stuff, go check out the Nerf Herder Council. It's a Star Wars-centric podcast, but we do talk about all kinds of nerd stuff. It's a nerd podcast, John. You stopped being about Star Wars and then kept talking about it. I said, dude, I, why you got to cut me off, dude? I just did a great a great segue. I'm just trying to hold you accountable to the things you said oh, about the Nerf Herder Council. Dude, Nerf Herder Council kicks ass. Yes, I, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of my show. I enjoy it. You know, it's it's me and my little brother, and you know, he hates being called little brother, but he's in shape. I'm a fat fuck, so I'm allowed to call him little because he can kick my ass. So there we go. <laughs> Final thoughts on Van Halen, dude. Van Halen fucking rules. Final thoughts on you and discography discussion. Thanks for having me on again, brother. Love you very much. And dude, anybody listening, I hope you guys have had a great time with this because. 
Dude, this is literally like something I've wanted to talk about forever. I've never gotten a chance to talk about Van Halen for hours on end. And here I am. So thank you guys very much. Sign up, you know, support the show, all the Patreon shit, all that good stuff, man. Support, support, support. So close your show, brother. I love you too, man. I don't have to now. You just did it for me. That's what happens when you get two podcast hosts together. Who's going to close? That's like we're battling it. Well, I want to tell everybody, thank you for listening to this podcast and make sure you are subscribed at patreon.com forward slash discuss metal. We have some sweet perks and I want everybody to be on the discord server discord.discussmetal.com. We'll get you there. Everybody is in there chatting all the time. We are talking about metal. We are talking about movies. We're talking about whatever we want to talk about because it's discord and we can do that. John, I need you and AJ and Steve on the Discord server. I need the Nerf Herder Council represented on the Discord server. We are easy to contact. All you got to do is ask at NHC Podcast. Send an email, dude. Nerf Herder Council at gmail.com or just give us a call because you have our number. But we are there, dude. And on that note, this has been episode 284 and note, of Discography Discussion. Thank this you for listening. You this can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you I listen to podcasts, in my, in my including fridge. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and beer. Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. Can you get through it? I can do it. Ah, you couldn't. Ah, you couldn't. You failed. Ah. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please send questions and comments to DanAndJoeShow at gmail.com. If you're not a patron, you can become one at patreon.com forward slash discuss metal. We have some sweet perks. Come on, Joe. Give me a break. Tell the people what they want to hear. $1 a month gets you into that exclusive album review feed. Can we just talk about the fact that Live Without a Net, when they're doing it live and Sammy taps him on the shoulder, Eddie turns around and goes, and then <laughs> and then Sammy, Sammy adds in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that huge scream, like, oh my god. My beer's fucking frozen. What'd you do? Did you make a slushy? That's what I get for putting it in the freezer. That motherfucker's actually ice cold. Now I'm drunk, so. Right. You want to hear an entire discography of music I wrote? Yeah, right. What do you got, you motherfucker? Oh, that's right. Yeah. You've got everybody else's music. Like yep. half of Van Halen's discography. You fucking dirty bastard. I didn't say it was bad. I have good things to say about it. Don't worry, John. I'm, I'm going to piss you off tonight. Does Van Halen get slower every time they put a record out? Well, now, wait a minute. I was going to go in a different direction. Everybody give the money for hope. Sell the arm will let you out.